There's a podcast that sure all the rock's heart is gold and they're climbing the stairway to eleven when they get there they know the record stores are all closed but online they can get what they came Welcome to the Stairway to 11 podcast. My name is George. Welcome to episode nine, the first of 2024. Hi, I'm John. And I'm TR. This year, in this new episode, we've got three new albums for you. And I am going to go first. So bust out the Aquanet, put on the eyeliner, and get ready for Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil. Motley Crue released their second album, Shout at the Devil, on September 23rd, 1983. This was their breakthrough album, and despite the eventual infamy of some of the band members, Shout at the Devil was, and still is, an album to be reckoned with. This album is dark and dirty, and while it may have been the start of hair metal madness, their look in 1983 was ferocious. I remember seeing this cover and going, dang, those chicks look crazy. But seriously, between the album title, the pentagram on the cover, and their sort of post-apocalyptic Mad Max look, Shout became a huge hit and started their path down notoriety by angering conservatives with their supposed satanic look and music. Three out of the four band members have been in the news for various and sundry bad boy acts, and I've had to roll my eyes many times, but I still believe in the first two albums, and I'm definitely looking forward to hearing the forthcoming McMars solo album. Let's set aside the drama and debauchery for a few and talk about the songs that made this album such an 80s hard rock classic. It's no secret if you listen to our other podcast, how I feel about Motley Crue and all the bands during this period. Not a fan. I think they're posers. I think they dress up with all their chains and stuff to look tough. And they're all like five foot three. Anyway, with that said... I do like this album. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be eating some crow too. Don't worry. <laughs> no, I, I, I make fun, but I'm not a fan of these guys. Although I do like McMars. I've always liked him. Yeah. But I, I, this I've always liked. And the first one, I think the first one's all right too. Yeah. I think it's good. It, it doesn't have, it's not as dark and dirty, but the songs are good. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a band I never got into. I couldn't stand glam or hair metal. I also never cared for Vince Neil's vocals. Uh-huh. I always felt like bands like this co-opted, distorted, and corrupted what Van Halen did. <laughs> but I wanted to give this a fair shake and try to hear it without all that baggage. So I tried to be very objective. Thank you. Yes. And you will find... There's a lot yeah, of baggage. <laughs> I'm not, there's, there's a lot of baggage, but there's also uh, some appreciation here. So Some whipped cream on top? So George, yeah, George, you're, you know... It's not going to be all in vain. Yeah. All right. So the first track is called In the Beginning. This intro track is one of the coolest intro tracks of all time. I'm known for skipping first tracks that appear to be intros, but this is a killer intro. I was like 12 years old, maybe, when this came out. And in a pre-Slayer, Rain and Blood era, this was a really dark record. 
and the ominous music combined with the distorted narration, which always reminded me of a megaphone, was super inspiring and totally set the tone for the title track that followed it. It has been written that those who have the youth have the future. Being a 12-year-old George that I was, I was like, hell yeah, we do. Anyway, (laughs) let's bust out the Aquanet and get this party started. Yeah, just real quick. To me, this sounds all too familiar to David Bowie's feature legend off the album Diamond Dogs. If you don't know what I'm talking about, give it a listen. It's a quick intro. It's very similar in eeriness. Obviously not the same content, what they're talking about. But I couldn't help think after a minute and, what, 30 seconds or whatever. It's a pretty short intro. I was like, oh, man, I wonder if somebody's a Bowie fan of the band. Because oh, I'm sure really, several of them are. Yeah, it really reminds me. If you go back and listen to the first two tracks, especially this Diamond Dogs, the title track after it, which is interesting because the next song coming up is the title track mm-hmm. of the album. It just has a similar feel. So if it's a nod to Bowie, then it's very cool. If they stole it, then damn them. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a whole lot more than that. I, I totally agree. It, quote, sets the tone, unquote. And it does kind of end, lend an air of epicness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, if I heard it now, I'd be like, yeah, whatever, skip. But at 12 right. years old, I was like, this is cool. Right. I mean, now it's kind of <laughs> cheesy, but like back then, and I don't know, it does kind of sound badass. Yeah. All right, moving on to the first real track, track two, Shout at the Devil. This song is a banger. It opens heavy and immediately kicks into the gang chanting, Shout, Shout, Shout. Mick rips off a tasty riff, and then the verse kicks in. Say what you will about Vince since these days, but the man was on top of his game for this album. Shut up, TR. And this track will (laughs) always be a classic that I will never fail to bang my head to. Also, I know Nikki is credited as songwriter on, I believe, most, if not all of their songs. But these songs in this album owe their dark, crunchy goodness to Mr. Mick Mars. His tone on this album is, I hate to say it, sick. (laughs) They went super commercial after this album and ever since. But this album has got some freaking teeth. If someone told me they need a song to headbang to, this is where I'd steer them. Maybe. (laughs) I don't disagree with you at all. I actually do like this song a lot. I liked it when it came out. And it is a banger. And uh, it sets the tone because this album has kind of a, I'm not saying bad production. It has a raw production. And it suits the content of the album. It suits the sound they're trying to go with. It suits the atmosphere they're going with. And it works. Plus, McMars' guitar sound just, it just sounds, he sounds evil on the album, yeah. his playing, and it, it just works. So I do like this song a lot. You mentioned about Nikki Six and all the credit he gets for writing the music. I will give him this. I, he's my least favorite member of the band because uh-huh. I can't, I don't think he can play to save his life. And I'm not the only one, apparently, who feels that way in the music world. <laughs> it's However, pretty, yeah. Uh... It's prevalent kind of it's kind of universal people who are inside now i will say he can write good songs he can write catchy songs i'll give him that he's a good he can write songs he thinks people will like however i agree with you george i wonder how much of mick mars is not credited on all their albums especially the yeah. early stuff well you figure because, that nikki probably theoretically came up with a simple bass line boom, boom and then tommy lays down a beat and Mick comes in and spruces it all up with guitars. Sure. 
And I, I wonder if the credits on these albums back then are more lyrical credits more than anything else. And so when they do the dividing up the music, it's because lyrical credits versus musical credits are completely different money wise. Yeah. You get more money for lyrical credits. So I, I do believe he probably is writing all the lyrics is my guess or a majority of them. Did you, I don't know. I'm not sure, but I'm guessing. Did you do any Wikipedia of these guys? Because uh, I did not know this until this morning or yesterday. Nikki Six was in a band called Widow Mm -hmm. with Blackie Lawless. Mm -hmm. And they used a lot of satanic imagery. And when they split and went separate ways, Nikki asked Blackie if he could use some of the imagery, like the pentagram that they put on the, which like, yeah, Blackie Lawless owns a pentagram. I don't think so. But anyway, (laughs) He asked him if he could use some of that stuff. And Blackie said, yeah, go knock yourself out. You know, you paint yourself in the corner with that kind of imagery. So I did not know that. I thought that was interesting that they actually played together or were in a band together. Right. Now, this (laughs) is before he actually joined up with Tommy Lee and the original guitarist, Mm -hmm. I'm guessing. Because Nikki Six is not the originator of the band. He came in. They brought him in after they decided to, I guess, Tommy Lee liked him because he liked his look, but the other guy, I can't think of his name now, the other guitarist did not like him, and he actually left the band because right. of that. God, mm. I'll, I'll have to look up his name. I can't think of it. It's right been a now. while since I read The Dirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my comments on this, definitely a rocking song. I still don't care for Vince Neil's vocals. The riff is great, though. The gang vocals, the fist pumping. I mean, definitely has all that. And the other day, I kind of woke up and John, you'll appreciate this because this is my tie to another song. <laughs> the first one of the night. <laughs> yeah. I, so I woke up and I was like, this reminds me of Dio's Invisible. Because mm. the kind of the cadence dun, and the way he dun, delivers. Dun, dun, and dun, even though it is, yeah. Dun, dun. It's like very similar to Invisible. Now that you say that, yeah. I was like, and so then I like a beat them and they're not like, it's not the same key. It's there's, and there's plenty of differences, but, but the cadence though of the way he delivers the vocals and some of the riff uh-huh. is pretty similar. Hmm. I don't know. It it's just, a very it, basic that song. That kind of came to me. Yeah, it is. And that's why it's not too out there to say like, oh yeah, this is similar to some other simple rock song. But anyway, that, that was something that, that I woke up, like I was, (laughs) I don't know. It was weird. It was like when you wake up in the morning and like, there's nothing in your mind and all of a sudden like this comes in and it's just like, wait a minute, that's the same. That's, this sounds like invisible. And then I go down, stop, run downstairs and go listen, bring it up on the thing. And okay. All right. Let's see here. Yeah. Cause you know, you got to get past all the, when the circle stays unbroken, then you're a lucky man. And then yeah. you got to get to the, the, the main part where the it like really kicks in. Yeah. Then it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. This is, yeah, this is pretty similar. All right. So let me completely blow your minds. All right. Imagine Dio singing, shout at the devil. <laughs> that would have been awesome. You'll never get that Actually, out of your mind ever I'll again. I'll tell you what, I wish he had because <laughs> honestly, like this whole album could have used a different vocalist and I probably would have loved it. Well, I Okay, here's one it. for you then. I Vince Neil singing Rainbow in the Dark. What? Vince Neil singing Rainbow in the Dark. <laughs> oh, boy. 
Oh man, how how to ruin something in twenty <laughs> seconds? <laughs> Should have never said anything. Now I can't oh, hear that boy. song again. <laughs> anyway, All oh right. boy. All right, track three. We've got looks that kill. Killer Mick opening riff. I meant to mention. I meant to mention this in the album intro, but this album is really a pretty good barometer of what Holly Weird in the nineteen eighties was all about. It was makeup and hairspray and overindulgence and danger, and all that comes through in the songs on this album. I never cared much for the lyrics for this song, whatever, but the song rocks and it still stands up to me. And come on, in a decade of gang vocals, this one on this track is still pretty good. I agree. This is by far my favorite song from the band, and I think this is the most polished song on the album, actually, just in terms of the songwriting for it. I would be curious how this song would sound had they had different production. I like it with a raw sound, but it just sounds more slick compared to the rest of the songs. It is the best song written. I actually don't mind Vince Neil's vocals on this one because he's not having to go too high like he yeah. did on Shout at the Devil at the beginning. The riff is great, like you said, George. It's probably this and a couple other songs I know about the closest they're going to get to being metal yeah. in terms of the metal sound. The first two songs not the intro off this and then there's another two songs later in the album that's about as close as they ever got and if they had stuck to that formula yeah they'd still probably be pretty big not as big as they got but they would be considered more of a hard rock slash metal band for yeah. the 80s um, when this came out it was definitely considered metal it was at the time this especially these two songs we just talked about mm-hmm. it's at this point in the album i realized how good of a guitar player Mick Mars is. I'm not saying he's a technical wizard, but he's very good at what he does. And he creates some great riffs. He has some great tones. He does have some kind of neat harmonies and melodies he throws in, especially on this song, I think. It's also quite apparent that you can't hear anything Nikki Six is doing, really, on this album. <laughs> and I say that because, and TR will know what I'm referring to here, and George, actually, you will too, but for different bands. I'm going to tie Metallica and Dream Theater into this. <laughs> there we go. Oh, man, here we go. And Justice for I, Dreams. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, you man. Know. Yeah, um, I, I know where you're going now. Yeah, I think you do. Yes. It's very apparent that Nikki is not great because Tommy Lee's bass drums are pounding throughout this album. They mm. thump constantly. And it's Metallica did that to Jason Newstead where all you hear is Lars's bass pedals, his bass drum, and you don't hear his bass on Injustice for All. And Mike Portnoy, when he was with Dream Theater, now back with him, was notorious for putting his bass drum out ahead of John Young's bass, huh. which yeah, is so, crazy because so, John oh, Young's an amazing bass player. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The difference here is like the, <laughs> between the two guy, bass players that you can't hear, Myung is like 20 trillion times better than... <laughs> Yeah, Nick said's not a bad bass player. He's a oh yeah, no, player. but I'm talking about Nikki Six. Yeah. <laughs> and I, it became apparent to me at, at at this point that I wonder if, and I'm not a super fan of Tommy Lee's. I think he's extremely overrated. He's good for what he does, but that's not saying he's great. But he's a thumper on this album, and I noticed that, and it might be the production too because it is a darker, more raw sound, or rawer. I don't want to just be redundant with the errs there, but I just noticed that at this point. But by far, I agree, George. This is a great song. I love this song when it came out. I love the video 
Is this the video where Mick Mars's <laughs> legs were on fire or Nikki Six's legs were on fire during the video? I believe uh, so, yeah. I'm not yeah. sure about that one. Yeah. yeah I think so I, I actually have yeah, I have some comments about that myself. <laughs> so yeah, I said this is another awesome riff, and the video was on MTV all the time. An early 80s metal video with women in cages and more leather and studs than Rob Halford's closet. <laughs> Did, uh, is this the video also where Mick Mars spit up blood? No, I don't recall that being in this video. Mm. Which one? What do you remember, George? Or was that shout at the devil when he he does it in one of the videos? I don't know. Early yeah, videos. Because all I all I can think of is Gene Simmons doing it. I could have sworn it, that Mick Mars did it. Maybe I'm no, wrong. I'm not. I'm not. He I, might I, have, I think he not, did. I don't think it was in this video. Like this is like remember. they're holding torches and they're like oh yeah, no, scaring, like, these, yeah <laughs> scaring these women into the get into this cage or whatever, yeah. and then the get you know, in the your pri- cage, and then the 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 queen of the priestess of the the lioness woman comes out and they're all chasing after her and i mean it's so ridiculous i I got another tie-in for you tr you'll just all right right. this video is when rocky like a hurricane met planet of the apes (laughs) yeah that's pretty accurate i think with the cage and rocky like a hurricane and planet apes they're herding into the cages (laughs) damn dirty apes he spoke yeah, you're not going to get this kind of quality on every podcast. That's, trust me. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. They're right. not saying it's real quality. It's just no, a, it's qual- just, it's a, it's a quality. quality. A quality. Bad yeah, is a right. qu- type of quality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will say up to this point, I do like this album. All right. <laughs> yeah, I guess I would say the same. Then I won't but call it's... you a track four. Mm. Oh, thank you. Which is Bastard. Not going to lie, 12-year-old me heard this song in a pre-appetite for Destruction World and chuckled. He was like, Bastard, because there wasn't a whole lot of cursing in music up until Appetite for Destruction blew the doors off of that, and and then gangster rap came along and the floodgates <laughs> yeah, opened. Right. That, all that seemed very tame. Yeah, and it was cool. Yeah. I know, I know. Right. This song rips. It's one of my faves on the album, in an album full of faves. Really, definitely bringing the danger and sleaze factor in this one. L.A. in the '80s would eat you up if you weren't careful, and this lays out there perhaps as a warning for potential hopeful transplants. Anyway, have I said McMars, that tone? Yeah, I agree. I, I do like this song again, too. It's got a nice kind of punk meets 80s metal at that time. Yeah, It's definitely got a punchier sound. Uh, again, I agree. I love mixed sound on this. The raw sound, the raw production really works for this kind of a song. Again, I hate, I'm going to be, I'm going to keep thumping on the thumping from Tommy Lee mm-hmm. throughout this whole album. It's really apparent again on this song. And it just kind of drives me nuts because either drummers, you can't hear them or they're too loud and they just can't <laughs> seem to find that space sometimes. And so I agree. I actually thought Vince Neil's vocals on this song were in a better range for him. He didn't really do too much. He didn't go too high, which was when yeah. he doesn't go high, then I can listen to him. Uh-huh. I don't necessarily dislike him as much as it sounds like TR does. But I, I'm not a fan, though, either. When he goes high, I'm kind of like, ooh, a little too high. So, and, and like I said, the previous song, up to this point, I think the album's been has been good. I like this song, too. Excellent. Yeah, I, definitely a rocking song, killer solo, great riff. And I agree, John. Like I, I hadn't thought about it, but most of the songs up to this point, I've, I've had some note about, I can't, I really can't stand Vince Neil's vocals. I don't like his vocals. And in this song, I didn't write a, I didn't write a note about that. So I must not have, it must've been, I agree. Like, I think when he's singing in a, 
in a more normal range, I think it's kind of acceptable. But like he, when he starts doing that high stuff, it, it, it all goes into his nose and it just becomes this nasally thing that I just ah, can't stand it. Too so, bold. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I would have to agree. I think like, cause I didn't, I didn't find his vocals offensive on this song. No, I think when he's in his in the mid range and he stays there and doesn't venture too high or too low, I think he works well. He yeah. does, he works for what the music wants. So. Yeah. All right. Track five. God bless the children of the beast. Another interlude. This one with a gothic tinge to it. Beautiful guitar work by you know who. Mm-hmm. Not the kind of thing you would find on later albums and surprisingly fitting intro to the next song, which is a cover and it kind of ties back into the intro track. Sorry, not the next song, but the, the, the music and the God bless the children of the, that part kind of ties back into the intro again, I think. Mm, okay. I have to ask this. I actually like this song too, again, because it's Mick Mars is the feature of it. And I think he's got some nice stuff he does on this, but it sure feels like a filler song to me. I don't see them as a band that has, that highlights Mick Mars's guitar playing like that. I'm glad they did. Uh-huh. And so that's why I, when I say filler, I'm not saying it in the negative context that we know oh, there's a lot of filler in this album. Is this something they threw in at the end? Is any, I don't, I didn't read enough about the album. I don't know. Was this something planned? Did he fight for this to get it on the album? Was the band cool with him doing it? I just, I don't know the history of this song. So it, I agree. It ties in to the next song, kind of like the way the intro did with Shot of the Devil. But I never understood why this song was here because they don't seem like a band that features, at least on album, a solo highlight. They do live. Tommy's got his spinning yeah. drum set thing and <laughs> Nikki lights himself on fire or whatever. And, or whatever he does running around to the click track. But I just, <laughs> I got to stop. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I don't, and I'm not being negative about the song. I actually like, I feel like there needs to be more of this stuff from Mick Mars. I hopefully get that on a solo. Album. I hope so. And again, I'm not saying he's a God, but he, he does some really nice things that I appreciate the way he plays. Yeah. yeah. I, I love this. In fact, like this was one of my favorite tracks on the whole album. It's got a really cool 12 string intro. It's an excellent instrumental tune. I agree with you. Like the fact that they even featured him is kind of surprising to me, especially given like how they treat him. Yeah. Like some of the stuff I read about, like, cause obviously I never really followed this band, but I read up on it a little bit to, and yeah, like he's always been just kind of like, I don't know, kind of marginalized in this band apparently. Uh-huh. And I can't understand that because like, this guy's probably one of the most talented guys in the band. Like, <laughs> and that's the, the problem. He, he is the most talented guy in the band. Yeah. So they're like jealous of him and they're, he's more of an introvert. They're extremely extroverted. Yeah. And it's just two different camps. Yeah. And yeah. for the record, I'm not saying he's the angel and they're all the devils in the band. I'm sure he's got his fair share. There's fair share of stories of his debauchery too, but he just always seemed to be, a little more reserved because he is older than all of them. He's in his seventies yeah, while the other like, guys are in their mid sixties. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, he's considerably. Yeah. He's like 10 years older than that. For that period of time, it wasn't unusual, but when you had a lot of young musicians coming out to LA, they're all roughly the same age. Most of them from yeah. that, that period on sunset strip. And he just was standing out as he's a lot older, different. He's almost, 
his style of music they grew up on is considerably different than yes. the music that all these younger guys grew up on. Absolutely. All right, track six, Helter Skelter. So here we've got a cover of the Beatles. At 12 years old, I hadn't yet heard the original version of this song. And in retrospect, this is a pretty bold choice for this type of band covering the <laughs> Beatles. But I've always loved this version. The Beatles version of this is definitive, but I'll go so far as to say that this version is at least above U2's version from Rattle and Hum. And, and that's a good version. Given the song's related history with the Manson family and the fact that all that took place in Motley's hometown of L.A., this feels like it fits. It just fits the album in the town. Yeah, so we'll go back to my comment about filler in the album. <laughs> no, hear me out. Hear me out. Okay. Was this, so I really do have a, a serious question. If there's any listeners out there who knows, and when we post this, please comment, I, honestly, because I, I can guarantee I'm not going to go back and look. And that's not, I just, I got too much stuff to do. But I'm curious <laughs> about this because was this something they planned to put on the album? Did they, because the reason I mentioned this, how many times have we mentioned this about Fair Warning with Van Halen? Like, oh, at the end, they just threw some stuff on because they had to finish off the album. I think it was the last, Out the Door was the last thing that they put together. And it's what, or One Foot Out the whatever it is, One Foot Out yeah, the Door. Yeah, One Foot Out the Door. Yeah, and but it's only, it's not even two minutes long and they just threw something together real quick at the end. Right, I, yeah. So that's why I asked this question. These two songs back to back, which fit together nicely, were these planned or did they have, did they just not have enough material at the time or the material they had, they didn't like, so they wanted to get something else on the album. It's just a question I have. I'm not, well, you know, I, to me, like when it comes to like covers, usually like there's somebody at the record company saying, Hey, we need a hit or we need to, you know, get right. Did they not like the rest that, of the material? Right. Like, I don't know if it got pushed on them or what. It's but, a good choice for a cover for, for yeah, them, I, guess. I agree I mean, you, George. Yeah. I don't, you guys, if you've heard, again, back to the other podcasts, I, I really don't like covers that much. Most of them, I think, are not well done or they're exactly the same. This one, I, I don't mind. There's a few that I do like, and I agree. It's nice to hear the U2 version and then Molly Cruz version. They're slightly different, even though it's really hard to do something different with this song. It's a pretty straightforward mm -hmm. song in terms of what they're doing. I actually liked Mick Mars's guitar solo in this. And it's at this point in the album, I realized he has all these cool guitar solos, but he doesn't overdo it. Uh, yeah, he keeps that's it kind of contained. He goes off. Yeah. He doesn't go off to the point where it's like, okay, it's all about this guy. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't draw attention to himself at all. No. And I think that's kind of adds to his persona a little bit. I thought his solo on this was great. So I mean, everyone knows if you're a rock fan, this song and the yeah. history of this song. So, uh -huh. Well, it's funny because I, I said definitely a rocking version, but not my favorite tune. I've never really cared for Helter Skelter. I don't know, just as a song. I just don't really, I don't know. I always felt it was kind of a strange Beatles song. Like it didn't really fit into me with the rest of their stuff. And, well, and it fits that album because that whole album is that whole album is, is, is I've is never really yeah and I'm sure purists would probably break me over the coals but I just I never really liked the white album there's like maybe oh goodbye maybe, thanks for yeah. playing <laughs> they had made that like a single album and called out some of the block that kick and blasphemy on this <laughs> then maybe you it's know certainly not I, I think my top yeah, favorite no, Beatles album I'm sorry but it just does not rate. Uh, that my, level yeah i mean obviously great songs on that album but there's a lot of other stuff on that album so to me though i felt like this seemed unnecessary like it to me this did not fit in with the rest of the album 
I felt like really, I said, yeah, I felt like it was like, I don't know. It felt like a, like, like what I said, like the record company said, Hey, yeah, put some uh, cover on there so we can get some attention to this thing. And it just kind of felt like, like a song that they, they did a respectable version of it. Like it's definitely good. But it it feels unnecessary with the rest of the songs on this album. Like like I don't know. It, to me, it felt like why are you doing this cover song when you've got a whole bunch of songs that like are establishing who you are as a band. Like this seems to be kind of like a compromise of some kind, or like a like oh we had to because the band the record company said we needed to put this on there. I just felt, I think I felt like it seemed unnecessary on this album. Like I, I would have rather heard a, another original track on this album rather than this song. I don't, I mean, like I said, it's, it's a rocking version. They did a great job with it, but why? You know, So you like, kind of have would, a similar approach to me as to what was the reason for this being. On yeah, the I agree. Like, However, yeah. I agree with George. I think it fits the time and the scene in LA, but it also mm-hmm. fits the image they're trying to portray. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, they're, they're trying I, to be badasses with the makeup and, like you said, the the chains and leather, and they're trying to look like if we get into a street brawl, we're gonna kick your ass kind of look. <laughs> which, yeah, yeah. I feel like know, this now that song, wouldn't be the case, obviously. But I agree yeah. with you, George. So I think it kind of fits a little bit for I, that reason. Yeah, okay. I, I feel like the, the sound of this song is just one more ride in the fun park of Motley Crue's Burning Garbage. Or burning garbage fun park, like burning from like dumpster going down sunset boulevard. Not, I, that's not a that's not a, a comment on the band, but a comment on the apocalyptic video. It looks like uh, okay, <laughs> right. that would come later. The burning dumpster. Yeah, <laughs> the dumpster was only half full at this point in their career. Yes, yeah, but it was burning just as hot. Yes. All it was right. Almost red hot. Mm, yes, just like track seven, red hot. <laughs> Sorry. It's all right. No worries. I think every track on this album is classic. And while I don't think this track brings much more than a ton of attitude to the party, I do think that Vince's vocal hooks navigate this one home and make it a potential earworm. This is what it sounds like to get by on a snarl and a riff. Okay. So here's my first quote about the, or comment about this. This song reminds me of Brownville station smoking in the boys room, (laughs) as well as Judas Priest's Exciter off of Stain Class. It it has that little bit of a vibe from both songs that I thought of. And yeah, it's it's a raw sounding fast paced, maybe another one of their songs that kind of ventures into that metal world. I thought Mick Mars again, great riffing. It's we keep saying that on every song. Yeah. And it's at this point I'm still liking everything on the album. I haven't worn out yet. It's a short album. It's only what 36 minutes long, I think. Yeah. And yeah. that's what those two Intro pieces, the guitar solo thing is not an intro piece, but with those two interlude intro thing going and with a cover, that takes even more time away from it. But again, still not digging the upfront bass pedals from Tommy Lee. That's just me. I'm a former drummer. So you just have to accept that. I kind of like how punchy his drums are. They, they get a little punchier. It's funny. I, I'm glad you brought that up. They get punchier for me as the album goes on, I noticed. Uh-huh. And maybe it's because the songs up front, like Shout Out the Devil, Bastard, and Looks Like Kill, I think are the be- the better written songs for this type of music are up front on the album. Uh-huh. But that's just my opinion. But yeah, I kind of got this weird smoking in the boys' room meets Exciter vibe to the song. And I'm... <laughs> 
I don't know, just a little bit. And by the way, Stained Class, Red Hot. I believe that's part yeah, of the title yeah. of a so, song on the album. Yeah, so that's it. I'll, I'll, I'll pick it up from there because, uh, John, I said the same thing. This has a Judas Priest feel. But I have to say I like White Heat, Red Hot better. <laughs> I do like the solo in this one, especially the harmonized section. I think it's funny. You, you uh, Somebody stole my notes. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> uh, so you brought – okay, so that's the second time I've heard this. Do you guys agree? I don't think Mick Mars gets enough credit for his, his – harmonizing and i'm not a guitar player but i i had no just a few terms it words it just seems like he does some different things that other guitarists weren't doing in this scene uh-huh. uh, what i'll say is considering that he was the only guitarist in this band i think when when you've got a kind of a lot of bands of this style would have two guitars right like and and you would Agreed, have yeah. And you would have like somebody there going, okay, let's get a harmony going in this year. And then they'd work on it and you'd get that. But he had to come up with that on his own to kind of try to thicken it up or like to kind of give it a little bit more of an interesting kind of thing. So, yeah, I agree, John. Like, I I feel like what he does in that regard really does lend a really nice flavor to what goes on in these songs. And I appreciated that. I kind of liked what he was doing. I've gained a whole appreciation for Mick Mars. I really, like I said, I never got into this band. So to the more I listened to this record, it was like, wow, okay, this is pretty rocking. <laughs> and I'm not saying other guitarists in the LA scene weren't good. There are plenty of great guitarists on the scene, like Warren Demartini. Is that his name? Warren Demartini yep. from Rat. Right. Yeah was a fabulous player and i wasn't a super rat fan but i always when i watched him i was like this guy can play so i'm not saying that there weren't other great players tr you hit the hit it on the head for me a lot of those bands had two guitarists and mm-hmm. and very few bands were like a band like night ranger yeah i brought night ranger into it because mm-hmm. their first album rocks but they had probably pound for pound the two best guitarists oh, yeah. you could have and they're both lead guitarists and yep whereas other bands had a rhythm player and then they had a great lead yeah, player. Right. So, yeah. Okay. You clarified it a little better for me. I'm not, I, I can't do guitar shop talk. Like you guys. <laughs> Pretty so. good job there. I'd say. Yeah. I know a few things. I wanted to mention that you brought up smoking in the boys room and I, I don't know why I didn't think of that when we were talking about Helter Skelter, but I was like, they did a cover on the next album as well. Smoking mm-hmm. in the boys room. And I'm like, and to me anyway, that was the first song I heard off that album. So I Me would, I, I think that was released yeah. before Home Sweet Home. And, I think so. I think you're right. And so they led with the the cover on that album. So again, something they like to do, were they told to do it? I I feel like that one was one. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's a crew fan out well, there. Well, it feels that, like that one was their choice. Yes, I, I would agree with that. Yes, and I felt like it, that. Yes, I would agree. Like it, it feel that felt more natural for them to do. And they kind of made it their own, and they, I felt like that was a better choice for them. This kind of felt like it was forced on them, and they did it. I mean, they yeah. did it, like I said, they did a very respectable rocking version of this. But, yeah, when it comes down to it, like, if you're going to rate their covers, like, Smoking in the Boys Room had a much better, more natural feel for them. It's also their Van Halen moment. Because they act kind of goofy in the video and everything, and it just it makes me feel like Van Halen would have done that easily like them. Anyway, all right, track eight, 
Too Young to Fall in Love. Now is as good a time as any to mention the misogynistic elephant in the room. This song, <laughs> yeah, you better do it now because there's plenty more. This song takes a lot of flack for some implied violence towards women, and I totally back up that assessment. Now I'm killing you, watch your face turning blue. Those words caused a lot of controversy, and in no way do I back them up or condone them on this. However, I have to say I've also never spent the time to dig into the lyrics to see if there's any meaning in it beyond young rock stars abusing women. Everything else about this album is covered in a coat of dirt and slime, so okay, let's just acknowledge that the songs display questionable taste and move on, because this song is super catchy and unfortunately is another one of my favorites on the album. Jog it up to being 12 and not knowing any better. The way I see it now is if I can watch a slasher horror movie and know it's not right to kill people, I can listen to a Motley Crue song and know that you don't treat women like that. Could have been about his dog. Clearly, I'm struggling to justify this one. And that, I know, is an Axl Rose reference. (laughs) Yeah. So Used to love her. Used to love her, but I had to kill her. Yeah, it's about my dog, man. Like, that's all I had to say. And they're like, oh, it's about his dog. It makes more sense about his dog than it does a woman. (laughs) I know. Yeah, I I remember this song when it came out, and it's a a catchy song. It's kind of a mid-paced song, which is interesting considering the chorus on it. It's probably the second best written song on the album Uh overall, musically. I think it's got a catchy chorus and and interesting groove to it. Again, mid-paced. It isn't overdone the course too, which is kind of nice. I, I will give Motley Crue this credit in the world. You don't hear that often from me when it comes to this band or any of these bands in this era. They were really good about their gang vocals. They uh-huh. didn't overdo them too much. It was like and, three or four guys instead of 30 or 40 guys. Yeah, no, that's the diff. Yes, three or four guys translating to three or four guys. And in a lot of European power metal, it's three or four guys translating into 30 or 40 guys. And that, yes, that's a good point. So they and they don't over scream. Maybe I'm wrong, but it just doesn't seem like you do as much as some of the power metal bands have done that, that followed. So I'll give them that. There was other bands that like to do these gang vocals that were more annoying that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way at this period. And this, again, this band doesn't do it too much. At least I don't think they do. So, and I kind of wish that this song was a little slicker on the production side, a little more polished. I think it could have been an even bigger song for them. But again, it fits the style of the album, which is a kind of raw, kind of hitting that nerve a little bit in the tones. So, Yeah, another hit that I remember being on the radio Definitely a cool riff, and the guitar tone is killer. The solo rips. Yeah, I, and to be honest, George, I didn't even pay attention to the lyrics, so I I didn't even. Yeah, me too. Well, for for the longest like, time, I didn't either. But then when the controversy rose about it, or at least I read about it later, I was like, oh yeah, that's kind of a not nice thing to do to somebody. But it it's a song. There's very little context, and yeah. like I said, if you're a if, if you're a sociopath psychotic person and you hear this and you want to do that to somebody else that's probably a bad thing but i think i'm a mature adult and i can listen to a song like this and understand that this is entertainment yeah but what's funny about this whole conversation is that an album like this will get a sticker slapped on it they'll sell probably another hundred thousand dollars hundred thousand more records in the u.s alone just because of the sticker on it or for them (laughs) five hundred thousand more but let's be honest is this really, and I'm not justifying anything. I'm just 
putting in context, is this any worse than another genre that followed in the 80s where it seemed like that was coming up in every song all the time? I mean, it could just be like an S&M kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it seemed to me if, if you were selling and you were popular, it was you look the other way. But if it was other bands, you you took a beating for it, uh-huh. which was the time. I mean, look at Twisted Sister. They took a beating for, was it Under the Knife? Yeah. And it's, let me explain what it's about, but you wouldn't. So I, I don't disagree with you, George, but like TR, the lyrical content of this album was not what I was thinking <laughs> about. not the high was, point. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so just saying. Yeah. yeah we'll I mean, to that. yeah, for the most part, I don't really pay much attention to the lyrics uh, beyond like, whatever I have to yell in the chorus while I'm pumping my fist in the air. Yeah. Um, I think that's the one thing Nikki six does do well is he finds the right lyrics for the chorus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If he's writing the lyrics, cause I will say those are, are pretty catchy. Yeah. I mean, you can listen to anything from their career, whether you like it or not. And you could acknowledge that it's a pretty catchy chorus. I mean, the word, the words he uses, they all seem to kind of, they're memorable. So I'll get, I'll give him that much. Yeah. All right, track nine, Knock 'em Dead, Kid. Like everything on this album, this track has a sound that you just didn't have before this album. It broke ground with every song, and, and this one does too. It's not one of my favorites, but as I listen back to it, my head is bobbing, and it just has this groove. Mick and Tommy are locked in, and Vince is snarling machismo like he has it in spades. I didn't have any complaints. Yeah, I'll be real brief too. Uh, I like the riffage again. It's cool. But it's at this point I realized Tommy Lee's not really very diversified in his playing. He kind of does the same thing all the time. And I wish he did a little something different. I wish he added some different fills. He He's a, pretty much a mid-paced player. He doesn't go too fast and he doesn't go too slow. He just kind of thumps along. And he gets a lot of credit for his, his stage antics. But I just, this is the song where I started to wear thin with the album a little bit. I agree, George. It's not one of my favorites off of here. It's not a bad song at all. No. Just starting to, I, I need a little more variety. And I think this is where I started to hear the same song over and over again uh-huh. a little bit with this one. So this album is really stuffed with excellent riffs. And this song definitely is uh, an example of that. And uh, my next comment was this, the music is the best part of this song. So <laughs> that your comment funny. on all of them. Well, yeah, pretty it has much, been so yeah. far. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I could throw the vocals out and some of the lyrics, I mean, this uh, musically, this stuff is incredible. Uh-huh. There's some stupid lyrics and some really awful lip vocals on this album that really kind of killed it for me. But Let's go to the next song. Yeah. When... yeah. <laughs> Hemingway, he is not. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. So track 10, 10 seconds to love. Mm. For a band known for their debauchery, there were surprisingly few tracks about women on the album. But this one takes a page out of the Kiss Handbook and heads straight <laughs> for the seedy side of town. That said, this love gun still rocks pretty hard, and it's catchy. <laughs> but if you're looking for something deep and meaningful, you took a, a wrong turn about 10 tracks ago. It <laughs> rocks. There's not much more to it. I expect this was one of their early tracks where they would divide up the audience into like two and go, you know, 
uh, make them each sing along. It has that like drum and bass breakdown at like the three quarter mark. And they're like, 10 seconds. And then you go, okay, you have to say 10 seconds. And then you have to say 10 seconds. Nobody, yeah, you can't can see, see my hand gestures. I mean, you can, but, yeah. but you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Yes, I, 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 I agree. I, I don't have too much to say about this song other than some of the things you said. Again, Mick Mars stands out again for me because <laughs> he doesn't overplay and it's not overdoing things. And yes, I said that this is the first time on the album I actually physically noticed Nikki Six's bass playing during the 10 seconds love gang chant. It's the three quarters way through you mentioned, George. It's the first time I'm like, I can actually hear him playing now, finally. Uh. And I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the production. Maybe that's why they did the production that way. All right. No, I won't say anymore. <laughs> tomato, tomato. Yeah. So I guess they like their love as quick as possible. Yeah. Oh, Got to go beat some dudes up later. I got to get out <laughs> yeah, of here. Right, you know, let's get this over with so I can get on to the other stuff. This sounds like a slightly, like, George, you called it like this sounds like a slightly more metal version of a kiss song. This is about as trite and juvenile as it gets. <laughs> this almost sounds like a Steel Panther song. This is actually more a parody of this kind of music than the actual parody songs. This was Steel Panther before Steel Panther. Yeah, before they were Steel Panther, they played music like this. Yeah, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sure, like, if this had hit me. Back then, maybe I would have thought this was cool or something, but man, this is like, are you kidding me? 10 seconds to love. <laughs> Which kind of reminds me like a CD version of Indiana Jones. Well, no time for love, Dr. No Jones. No time for love, Dr. Jones. <laughs> yeah. 10 seconds to love, Dr. Jones. <laughs> get it going. We got to get out of here. <laughs> this belongs in a museum. <laughs> you, Dr. Jones, belong in a museum. Yeah. Okay, that's all I got to say about that. All right, Jay. I'm so, proud to be the Jay of this podcast. <laughs> the last and final track, 11, Danger. So this has always been one of my surprise closet favorites. It's a bit more like the first album than the rest of the tracks. Maybe it's a leftover from Too Fast for Love, which is also good. This is a cautionary tale of life in L.A. in the 80s, and the chorus really drives that point home. These guys wear 80s L.A. like a badge of honor tattooed on their chests, and they just want to let you know that their town will eat you alive if you aren't careful. Forty years later, yeah, it's a bit of a cheese fest, but I don't care. I still love it. And Mick Mars. Yeah. Yeah, I found it interesting that they chose this point in the album to have a semi-ballad type song. And... It's kind of interesting, George, you brought up what I thought of, and TR, I wonder if you thought the same thing too. This song kind of does tell the story this of Sunset Strip in the 80s and how it would chew you up and just grind you down hard. And I got, I kind of felt like it was a little bit of a soundtrack to the era a little bit. I thought, again, Mick Mars, we keep bringing him up. I thought he sounded great. I thought Vince Neil over sang a little bit on the song. I have no complaints about Tommy Lee in the song. You know, talking yeah, he, about kind of uh, just played a he played a decent song, I thought. So on their first album, the last track on the album was called On With the Show, which is actually one of my favorites on the album. And that is a story, a cautionary story, kind of like this is a cautionary story. Maybe this is like their thing for the first two albums anyway, where they put this track in this position, just like Metallica was like, all right, we're gonna put the, the instrumental track at the end. And so I, I don't know, but uh, I'd never 
notice that until you mentioned that. Mm. I like the picked intro riff. Uh, I like the music to this tune. Not so much the vocals. Danger in Hollywood just sounds funny to me. Like here in Hollywood, in Hollywood, yeah, like it's the it just sounded funny. Like, oh, it's cheesy, okay, but yeah, danger in Hollywood. Like, it's if they had just said like in L.A. or someplace like not Hollywood, it might have sounded a little more authentic. Would Redondo Beach work better for you? Yeah, maybe that would be better. (laughs) Santa Monica. Danger in Santa Monica. Yeah, exactly. That's how it sounds to me. Danger in Hollywood. Come on. It's like you think of the big sign and you think like, oh, everybody's a star. Like, I don't know. I get it. There's a greasy, grimy underside. But when you hear Hollywood, you don't think about CD anything. Like you just think about Hollywood, like the stars and the spotlights and all this and Unless you're a greasy old man who listened to a lot of hair metal in the 80s, and then you think L.A., you think dirt well, see, and grime. And yeah. I mean, if, it, if they had said danger in Los Angeles. No, <laughs> see, there's saints of Los Angeles. Yeah, all right. Apparently. Okay. And, but there's danger in Hollywood. Yeah, I don't know. It just didn't, it just sounded funny to me. Like, okay, yeah. Like, I love like this danger. song. It's like danger in Disneyland. Oh, there is danger in Disneyland. If you want well, some maybe of rides, is, man. Yeah. Okay. That's that. That was my take on. Well, it. they're not going to say danger in Malibu. Okay, come on. <laughs> Although it would have worked. Right. Danger in Malibu. Yeah, you danger in Beverly Hills. Yeah. That's where they want to be. Yeah. That's where they ended up. <laughs> All right. In my opinion, this was the pinnacle of Motley Crue. The first two albums are Stone Cold Classics, and from here on out, I'm not going to lie, I do like a smattering of tracks from the other albums, but nothing ever came close to Shout at the Devil again. And while certain members of the band continue to try their hardest to make me regret loving this album, I remain a fan of Shout at the Devil. So there. Yeah, I like this album. I mean, I'll always take shots at this band till my time (laughs) is expired. but I, I have to give them credit for this album, especially again, Mechamars. Keep talking about them. But yeah, it's got a nice edgy raw sound to it, and it kind of fits for their this period of their first two albums. And then from there it gets slick production and big budgets and a lot of hairspray and a lot of lighter singing ballads. But up to this point, I actually don't mind the band. Yeah. Yeah, overall. I may have been a little harsh on this album. I actually ended up liking it a lot better than I thought I would. That's what I was hoping. If I, if I could get in like an instrumental version of this album, I think I would really, really <laughs> like it. Or just have Dio's AI voice transposed of yeah. all the songs. Oh, dude, that would be awesome. Yeah. I Danger I, I, here in I, Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> but every song has to start with just that synthy keyboard and him just singing as a quiet intro acoustic guitar only (laughs) exactly yeah i i've i'm done beating this drum but yeah i I would really like this if they had a different singer but Mm. i realized like i had no idea how cool mick mars was (laughs) and how many really great riffs are on this album Uh, i was really kind of surprised about that so would you listen to this again i probably would not all of the songs, but there are definitely a few songs on here I would definitely want to listen to again. You'd be like, yeah, okay, I want to hear some Mick Mars. Throw that on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like, And now that you mention it, I'm kind of curious about what his solo album might sound like. Yeah. 
Very you curious. Know? Like I have no, no idea like what he would come out with or if it's, I mean, do you know, like, do you know anything about it? Like, is he going to have any vocals or is it just, I don't know. Rocking or I had heard something about it a while back and then I didn't hear about it again until yesterday and I didn't, I haven't looked into it yet. Yeah. So I think it okay. also, I wonder how much of it will be contingent on how he is physically. He probably is not going to be able to tour obviously, but I wonder if he's, doesn't have any but if he ever wanted to play shows, I know that's almost out of the question completely for him. I think I he think, could do like a one-off. Maybe. Like, yeah. Like, you know, yeah. he and Ozzy could do one-offs together. They're um, both going to have to yeah. be seated in chairs or Hey, Phil Collins like, does do, it. He yeah. did it. Yeah. 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 So. so, yeah, no, it's a good choice, George. I mean, it was fun. Yeah. It, it brought back some memories and I actually do like most of the album. So. Excellent. All right. All right. <laughs> Moving on to our second album of the evening. TR, what do we got? This album is Yes, and the album is Drama, released on the 18th of August, 1980. This is the 10th studio album for this British band that began in 1968. The band had undergone numerous lineup changes over the years, but this was the first album without singer John Anderson. His distinctive vocals and personality were always a key component of Yes. However, tensions in the band over musical direction led to keyboardist Rick Wakeman and vocalist John Anderson leaving. This left guitarist Steve Howe, bassist Chris Squire, and drummer Alan White in need of new bandmates. Enter Trevor Horn and Jeff Downs from new wave act The Buggles. They were using the same manager as Yes and soon got linked up with Chris Squire. The remaining members of Yes were moving in a more aggressive direction musically, and with the addition of Horn and Downs, Yes's music evolved to a much edgier, rocking version of itself. I like what emerged on Drama, especially after their album Tormato, which I feel is one of their weakest outings. While this album only has six tracks, they don't suffer from some of the bloat and self-indulgence found on some of their more progressive works from the early 70s. To me, this sounds crisp, and fresh and inspired. It's one of my favorite Yes albums. This is when I discovered that Chris Squire was really the most in integral member of Yes. He brings the balls to the sound. If there was any doubt about this, it would be proven further when various members of the band got together as Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, Howell. How what? How you like <laughs> me now? How you like me now? <laughs> Can I just aside for a moment? Sure. You mentioned something in the intro that I did not realize until like three quarters of the way through the album, which was like, that's not John Anderson. <laughs> and I and it's in my notes. So I need to cut this out so I can play it later. But yeah, I was like, John Anderson's vocals are not as annoying as they usually are. <laughs> Well, see, George, you and need, I was like, he's singing because he's not singing quite as this high. This needs to be part of it, George. You, you can't leave this out. Oh, the, no! And believe me, I talk about it. Oh, okay, uh, and but I, I just I wanted you to know this now because you mentioned it. What are your com opening comments, George? So, I like to give Tr and John grief that my favorite Yes album is nine oh one two five because it has "Owner of a Lonely Heart" on it. And that's a very good 80s rock song. But listening to this album, I understand what was lost between this album and that album. They are very different. I've never been a big guest fan, though I am not prog averse, but it just never clicked. So 
I was apprehensive going into this album. Let's see how I fare. I have just a few brief notes. I am a big Yes fan, like TR. However, Yes can grade at me at times because it's just Yes. And if you're a Yes fan, you know what that means. Oh, boy. Here you're a Yes again. man. <laughs> so, however, this is without question one of my favorite Yes albums. It is the direction I wish Prague had gone in the 80s. Yeah. I wish this had lasted longer than 1982. Now, this album came out in 1980, and there were a few bands from the 70s that were doing this kind of change. Yes, on Drama, Rush, Up to Signals, and a band called Saga, if you don't know who that is, who were in this similar vein of, they were prog bands embracing the 80s. And then 1984 came, and the wheels came off for all the prog bands. Yes was in 1983, obviously. Although I do like 90125. Mm-hmm. Not to be confused with 90120. Beverly Hills. <laughs> yeah, so, I was going to make a joke and call it that, but I yeah. didn't. Yeah. I was going to say that, that Beverly Hills 90210 album. I will say real quickly, this is going to come up at some point. We're going to talk about the singer Trevor Horn and the band. I actually like him on this album, and I think they they needed to switch things up a little because of the style. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I that was what I was going to ask earlier. Was are you telling me that the dude singing on this album killed the radio star? Yes, that's right. Okay, I got to listen to this again because I freaking love that guy, (laughs) (laughs) and he's a well respected, I think, musician. Well, he's yeah, and even more so, producer. Yes, that's what I was going to get to. So my last few things about this album are, I think it's a very underrated Yes album. I think it's a dismissed Yes album because it doesn't have John Anderson on it. I think John Anderson would have been terrible on these songs. Yes, I agree. And I have proof of that. It'll come up on a song. I know exactly what you're going to say. Good. And we're on the same page. Yeah, we are. It, I just think he would not have been good. I no. find this album very underrated and it's very proggy, but it's kind of new wavy too at the same yeah, time. It so yeah. it's, that, it's, it's and, an, that nice niche period between the 70s and the 80s, late and yeah. early, where I don't know. I mean, like the police and the, like the clash, not the clash, but like bands that had that like post punk, pre pop sound that was sparse and sharp but catchy and mm-hmm. yeah i mean do you, yeah there's a lot of similarities in this album this is gonna piss a lot of fans off but there's a lot of similarities with this and rush where they were going in the early 80s they were mm-hmm. embracing new things they were adding different type of keyboards and since they were yeah. going in a different direction while they were still progging out, but the songs like right. TR mentioned, he brought up a good point. These songs were edgier and rock had more rock base. They were rockier. Yeah. That's not the right word. That's not the right. No, it's say true. It. Adrian, it's a little more. Yeah, Adrian, yeah, it's a little rockier. Yeah. Big rock, little rock. <laughs> and then there's just the rock. Yeah. So I think that's a great point. You brought up TR that they were embracing a rock more rock infused sound and they were still pretty proggy. This album's yes. got a ton of prog on it. Oh yeah. And we'll, so, we'll talk about that. So let's, yeah. And then afterwards, so, I yeah. want to just to cut, not to cut you off. I want to find out from TR where this ranks in the pantheon of yes albums. George, okay. I know you probably 
have a you, know, you can't <laughs> number you two can't base it. he doesn't have a pantheon yeah you i've know, got a He's got two albums to listen to. <laughs> yeah, so, but I'm curious to hear where you put this. So, I'm still wrestling with that, but maybe by the end I'll have. Well, it's going to change tomorrow. So It'll for change today, tomorrow. yes, excellent. Yeah, I, yes. I, right. I have to say one more thing is that when it finally dawned on me, which you'll learn later in the show, based on my notes, <laughs> that this was not John Anderson. I was like, why would Tr pick a album that didn't even have John Anderson on it? <laughs> what I mean, is isn't going he, on isn't here? Isn't he the guy? Isn't doesn't this make this like a that. This is like saying, we're going to do Judas Priest and we're going to do Jugulator. Yeah. Okay. I like Jugulator. So do I. Here we go. So do I. And blows, I, but I yeah, like okay. Jugulator. No, but the point, yeah, no, I mean, I know yes, saying. but this is Just, good too. So right. the, the point is, it's not what you would think you would go with. No. And so, there's a reason why. Yeah, there is. And I'll, and we'll get into that. All right. So on. here we are. The first song, Machine Messiah. What a leadoff track. Epic with multiple parts. It starts quietly with Hal playing a riff that grows in volume. His tone is gnarly and gritty, and the initial big riff when the drums and bass come in is heavy. This is the heaviest I had ever heard Yes be. Hal is throwing all kinds of pyrotechnics in on the riff, playing all over the neck, and then it smooths out to allow the vocals to come in. Horn sounds a little like Anderson, and Squire's backing vocals further give it credence. Lyrically, it sounds kind of profound, but I'm not entirely sure what they're really what they really mean. But Yes has always been able to write lyrics like this, not fully understanding what this is about. It winds into a staccato section after the first portion of the lyrics, and then goes into an entirely different segment where the band when where the band sing "Friends Make Their Way Into Systems of Chance." This builds to a portion where they all jam with the keyboards taking the riff, then the bass, then that, then how, then all of them together. It spirals down back to the original heavy riff to be followed by a quiet breakdown section strummed on acoustic guitar with atmospheric keys. How comes back in like at the beginning of the song and we're off again. It goes to the final lyric section and builds again to the final machine Messiah segment. It almost feels ritualistic. The song ends as it began with how shredding furiously to fade out. All right, then. Slightly less rational is my description, but... Less enthusiasm, maybe? Oh, no, actually, I said oh, okay. this, the song starts off all heavy and doomy. <laughs> I know this can't last. Some cool synths, though. And then the vocals, followed by a tornado of Prague. <laughs> Was that a piano falling down the stairway? <laughs> kind of Floydian epic monster riffs just past the middle of the song. Okay, the eye of the tornado has passed and we are back in the windstorm. That was probably that quiet part you were talking about. Uh, they sure packed a lot into one song. All right. Somebody stole my notes again. You just rattled off like five things I was going to say, which is me? awesome that you heard. Yes. Nice. Awesome that you heard these things. I'm cool. Uh, let me start out by saying, this is where old yes meets the new yes mm -hmm. on this album, especially this song. This is by far the most prog song on the album, not because it's 10 plus minutes long, but it really is the most prog song in song structure. TR is right. And George is right about this intro. It is this big booming, but just looming sound. It just grows in stature, keeps getting bigger. And yeah, 
this is yes doing doom metal i had to double check that i was listening to the right album yes <laughs> hold on fans like george said we're gonna get to the prog forest here in just a second we got to get over the mountain with the doom first and it's really kind of funny how you have this slow pace to start this is also one of the early proto prog metal songs this is one of the songs that influenced bands like dream theater they played this song live before they're yeah. big fans of this stuff this along with Rush and during this period, these are the things that they were in Kansas that they were gleaming to. And this is definitely one of those songs. I love the mix of the proggy side with the new style. There's no new wave on this song yet for this album, but it's a prog monster. And it's there's a reason why this is one of the favorites off the album. I love that I hear so many nods to other albums in the keyboard section. Jeff Downs is not the Rick Wakeman of this band. He's not that type of player. He can shred a little but that's not his style but i do hear these interesting little nods to close to the edge or going for the one they don't sound like those songs but there's nice little bits that remind me of those albums which i always thought was kind of cool he's very good at creating atmosphere he was never like i said a technical shred he wasn't Ke he's keith emerson he's not but that's what i like about him because mm -hmm. he really focuses on i can do some shredding but i like my atmosphere Definitely more technical than Tony K, the original keyboardist from Yes. <laughs> well, everybody's more technical than Tony no, K. <laughs> Tony was Tony K was great at creating soundscapes. That's his yeah. thing. So, and this is probably Jeff Downs' best moment on the album. I thought during throughout this song, I think Yes excels when they they stick to ten minute songs. There are the exceptions like Close to the Edge and Ray Lair, and then there's albums I wish never came out that are hailed as the greatest prog album ever, and it's really not. Tales from Topographic Ocean is really not that great. It's overblown. But this song seems to really hone in that 10-minute period. And I will say, George, you mentioned something else, but maybe we had at different points of song. It's very Floydian at the end. Yeah. The well, sounds of it, the atmosphere it, and the like, last minute and a half remind me of animals a little bit. I was thinking... Is, sorry. Oh, go ahead. What were you thinking? I was thinking more of the wall where it's like, boom, boom, you know, like... Yes. Big sounds. There were just mm. like big chords that's, they were like long, drawn yeah, out, the, dramatic chords. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So go back and listen to the last minute and 30. And I just love the atmosphere Jeff Downs creates. It just kind of reminds yeah. me of that Wish You Were Here and Animals period where there were just amazing atmospherics, not so much the psych rock going on. Mm -hmm. So, and if I've babbled on about this song so much, it's because it sucks great yeah it this really is, is yeah this is one of the anchor points of the album i mean one of the top parts of this album in my opinion maybe possibly the best song of the album mm, we might disagree there but we, that, yeah but that's one, okay one of that's the okay. best uh, i will say yeah all right moving on so the next song is called white car this light short piece is a bit of a palate cleanser after the fireworks of the opener the main lyric portion sounds buggly, but the parts before get a bit of prog treatment from the rest of the band. I said more of an interlude than a song, but it was cool for what it was. Best song on the album. Really? <laughs> no, I just said that because you guys uh, said that about the last uh, one. All right. Just all being right. silly. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. This is a cast off for me on this album. This is to me, I was like, okay, whatever. And from what I've read about it, it that's kind of how it developed. It was just kind of, was it Downs and Horn in the studio or whatever? And they just kind of threw it together. 
and it, yeah, it's boggled up and everything. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> yeah. Had I known I would have even, yeah. it would be well, my favorite song. I mean, the funny thing is, is there, there are songs on this album and I'll, and I don't want to give away too much here, but like you can tell like the parts that the buggles wrote and then they said, okay, guys, this is what we got. And then the rest of the band was like, okay, mm. we can prog this up pretty good. Just let us do this first part. You do your little middle part and then we'll do the rest of it. <laughs> oh, that's weird. I think I know what song you're talking about. Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> anyway. All right. So the next song is, does it really happen? Squire sets the tone with a driving bass riff that just sounds so ballsy. The drums give it extra splash and drive. Again, the lyrics don't make much sense, but they sound profound somehow. Hal has a sliding guitar riff as the first verse comes in. It's kind of a rollicking sound, and then it moves to the chorus, which is, a, is, which is catchy. Another verse and chorus, and then back to the bass riff with more lyrics in a somewhat proggy section that goes into an a cappella section of the chorus. They go back to the first verse, and it seems like the song is going to end, but the keyboards come back in kind of reminiscent of how Over the Hills and Far Away ends, but this is more rocking. The last minute and a half is Squire just jamming on the bass. I love it. I said, more heavy guitars. Stop teasing me. <laughs> the vocals are okay again. I think I prefer when it isn't gang vocal harmonies, whatever. Cut to the present. This is me starting to realize that something sounds not like John Anderson. <laughs> what? I was like, something, yeah, I, don't know, I just like it better. Who is this guy? I said, the music is, of course, crazy good. Not sure what else to say, but it is crazy good. John, I think this is where you're going to talk about how John Anderson really should not have been on this song if he had done it. I'm. You didn't have to leave that for me. You could have brought that up if you wanted to. But yes, this is, I will go on record and say right now, this is my favorite song off the album, but it's Ooh. one of my 10 favorite Yes songs of all time. I absolutely love this song. Mm -hmm. This is everything... I wish yes, it continued doing in the at least for a little bit in the eighties. I TR did his best to describe it. I can't do any better than him to describe how incredible Chris Squire sounds at the beginning of the song with his yeah. bass intro. He's a pick bass player, and generally, I know to purists that's oh, the pick bass player, but he does it in such a way. He's not such a bass player as he is a lead bass player. He leads the band. He mm -hmm. Steve Howe's an incredible guitar player, but a lot of their songs are bass-led. Oh. And you can go all throughout their history to hear how he does this, and he shines on this song. He just... If you thought that he wasn't there anymore because the band changed, because they brought in two new members and a new singer, you were sorely mistaken because he shines on this song. Yeah. And I have to say, George, I do disagree with you regarding the multiple vocals, I actually think this is where Chris Squire absolutely shines. He's never a lead vocalist, but when you have multiple singers, he outshines everyone he sings with because his voice is great for melody with everybody else. And I can't tell you how many times during that acapella section TR mentioned that I think of like the middle section of Starship Trooper, where he almost becomes the lead vocalist during that acoustic part where he's singing with John Anderson and Steve Howe off of the album, the S album. 
it just reminds me of how great of a melody singer he was with everybody else as a standalone. Eh, I wouldn't really want to hear him sing, but when he's singing with everybody else and harmonizing, yeah. I think he's incredible. And I think he really shines on this album and you're correct, George. This is at the point in the album where you're like, wait a minute. It says Trevor Horn's the lead singer on this album. What? 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 Who the heck is going on here? This is kind of like when I got, I'm going to tie this into Marillion. Oh, man, here we go. This is just like when I got season's end, and I was like, this doesn't sound like fish singing at all. (laughs) Who the hell is Steve Hogarth? (laughs) And when did he join the band? (laughs) And that's, George, you're spot on. This is the moment where it becomes apparent. Something's different. Yeah. Did uh, I did I diss somebody's vocals? Because I feel like oh no, I just that that much of a fan of and, and Tr could think of all the other songs that I'm referring to. I just think Chris well, Squire when yeah, he harmonizes is no, incredible. Yeah, and, and I think when you start to and, and this was never more apparent than after he passed, like his vocals are so unique and they are such an integral part of yes. And you don't realize it because they're always in the background. But once you realize like how crucial they are and just like the tone of his voice and the way he sings and how well he sings, he's actually a very good singer. Steve Howe is a terrible singer. Uh, He obviously could harmonize pretty well. And uh, a lot of times when they were doing multi-part harmonies, it was good for him to be in there. But if you've ever listened to any of Steve Howe's solo albums where he just sings himself, he's terrible. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm just like Joe Satriani. Terrible. uh, Uh, Joe Satriani's better. No. Yeah. Way better. Wow. Way better. So, so what I'll say is that I totally agree, John, like Squire's vocals, you, until you actually, kind of reckon with the fact that like how how just integral apart like he's always sung on yes songs right like all, all the way he back sings on every the, song yeah everything yeah everything so he's always there and he lends this kind of texture to the vocals that when you don't have it it's very apparent and right. after he passes like his vocals not being on there and his bass not being on there really kind of makes you feel like what's the point of yes anymore yeah i i agree i mean like i said if you go back and listen to starship trooper the part where it starts where loneliness is a part of us or oh yeah exactly yeah it it stands out and then actually i think he makes john anderson sound better because then the highs aren't that high he kind of brings yes but to finish up with this song real quick speaking of john anderson i'm so glad he's not on this album because this is not a new song. This is an older right. song that they were messing around with during the Tormato sessions, which is a dud of an album, I think. Yeah. There are just a few good songs on it, like on the Silent Wings of Freedom, which by the way is another great Chris Squire bass song. Yeah. But it, this song was originally called Everybody's Song. And it, it stinks. Yeah. I don't like it. Anderson I mean, singing on this. It's it, horrible. It, you could yeah, it's terrible and he doesn't get it. And, and it just you can it, it what a difference like when you listen to like that that outtake of anderson singing on some of this this riff and then you hear this it's almost unbelievable like yeah, he just meanders he, and he yeah he would have really he would have brought this album down like yeah. there's no way 
that this album would have sounded as crisp and fresh as it does with Anderson on it. And, and I hate to say it, but like that's, oh, that's the, truth the truth about like, yeah, there's a song coming up in a little bit because there's not many songs in the album where it's glaringly apparent he would have butchered the song even worse <laughs> than this song. So yeah. on that note, I'll All just right. say if you, and this is another proto metal song. This is another yeah. song that I could see a band like Dream Theater really, whether yeah, you like it or not, teeth into it, right? just like, wow, this is what we're looking for. Yeah. All right. So the next song is called Into the Lens. This starts jaunty, syncopated, and proggy, but then it gets a lot more straightforward. I have to admit, when I first heard this, I thought the I am a camera line was kind of dumb, but it grew on me. I like the breakdown in the middle of the song. How is doing some cool things on guitar in this song? Take techniques that he would also employ in Asia. And this is another song where it sounds like the Buggles kind of brought like the main vocal line and lyric. And then the rest of the band said, okay, we can prog that up. I no think that's problem. actually what happened, isn't it? I think this yeah. was a Buggles song, wasn't it? Originally? Uh, I- Yes, actually, yeah, they ended up recording it later, I think. But I think it was Jeff Downs and Trevor Horn all the yeah, way to start. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And then the rest of the band said, okay, let's let's prog this up. <laughs> <laughs> I am a camera. That makes more sense now that it's a buggle thing. I, no, it's I am a camera. <laughs> I th- the, 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 here's where the dawning happens. I think what I like about this album compared to others I've heard is that the music is very tight and focused. Mm. Er, Earlier stuff kind of makes me think of musical mush. Just because, I don't know, maybe I'm making assumptions based on old memories, but it just seems more focused, like a camera. Or maybe the style just changed a bit by the time we got to 1980. Long pause. Okay, I finally figured it out. (laughs) This isn't John. But it sure does sound like him. I was going to mention how cool the Wakeman synths were, but I see that it wasn't him either. (laughs) (laughs) Well then, carry on. (laughs) Yes, this is uh, Yes Meets New Wave. Definitely. I agree with you, TR. And I do believe that is the story. I think that they, Jeff Downs and Trevor Horn had this song that they were working on and it's very apparent you can hear when there's a prog injection Mm -hmm. in there and you can hear when there's a kind of a new wave it's not i hate to say post-punk but that's what a lot of these bands were called post-punk new wave was the word i was looking for or phrase rather for when i was talking about like the police and whatever yes and it's true new wave was yeah that was happening then happening and these bands were embracing it and I thought this was an album where they embraced it without it going off the rails. Now I know a lot of yes purists will disagree with that. And that they're entitled. They want to hear the ancient played eight times in a row at a concert. So that that's <laughs> what they like. Again, I'm digging on the album Tales from Talk Graphic Ocean. With that said, I, I like this song. But there's times I'm like, man, I wish this was just two different songs because it really is. It could be two different songs. However, there are some yeah. great moments in it. I, I do love some of the things they try to do. I get a little bit of Sound Chaser off of Relayer and some of his bass playing around the three minute, 45 second part, which is kind of nice. There are a lot of nods to previous albums in here, but they're done in such a way that they're quick. They're in and out, which is kind of nice. They're like saying, hey, we're still here, but we're doing something different. There are plenty of great Steve Howe moments. 
he's such a good guitarist and he's yeah. so unique. He just shouldn't sing lead. That's all we're saying. <laughs> yeah. so, you're a nice guy, I, but no. Yeah. I can see where fans, older fans wouldn't like this song as much because it does kind of blend, does blur the lines a lot. Yeah. I, the funny thing is, is I kind of like how they put it together. Like it, it doesn't sound, while these are two styles that you would not ever put together, they make it work. Like yes, it I just agree. doesn't, it, I mean, it doesn't sound while while you can tell like which style is which they blend it together in such a way that you feel like, yeah, this works. And it, it complements the song by having both of these different elements in it. And I, I think that you could say that about this whole album, which I think is what really makes it work. And it just injects that freshness into this band that like really needed to go in a different direction after a couple of kind of lousy albums. Whoa, whoa, uh, couple? You don't yeah. like going for the one? No, I should say that's yeah. true. Tomato, Tomato feels really... like a couple of bad albums. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, let's get into the next track. It's called Run Through the Light. This is an interesting song. The only one Hal plays a mandolin on, and Horn plays a fretless bass. I like Squire's vocals on this, and the keyboard and electronic effects add a cool atmosphere to it. Hal sprinkles guitar accents throughout. I can't say this song title without singing it in Iron Maiden. Run <laughs> through the light. <laughs> you know, completely change a song by one word, you know, instead of run to the hills. What if it was yeah. run through the hills? Run towards, towards the light. Through the light, yes. <laughs> you know, could have been different. Mm. Anyway, it's a good song. What can I say? I'm still kind of reeling from the personal epiphany of the last track. <laughs> and the fact that this album was apparently just thrown together before heading out on tour is kind of a what? That's impressive. Yeah, agreed. I have a real soft spot for this song. I really do. I love this song. I love the atmosphere on it and the atmospherics. This is, again, I wouldn't say they're going full new wave, but they embrace it in a proggy way, which is kind of nice. Trevor Horn sounds eerily close to John Anderson on this. However, and I will read the lyric to you, Tiara, I think you would agree with me on this. I think John Anderson would have butchered this song from the very beginning because <laughs> Trevor Horn has a very, he, on this song, he's very crisp and to the point. So when it opens up with, you know, I asked my love to give me shelter and the way yeah. he says shelter, he breaks it up and he yeah. says, and all she offered me were dreams. John Anderson be like, no, she offered me were dreams and birds and flowers. And he would just yeah. keep going on and on. And it's like, we're right. already in the third yeah, verse. Come of the on, song. dude. Yeah. Like yeah. catch up, will you? And I really think Trevor Horn fit. This is the song where he, I think, does a great job of kind of going in a direction yes had never gone in before. And this song is definitely yeah. different. But there's some great fretless bass on here that just you're ah, it's, that's Chris Squire. Then you're like, I'm looking at the liner notes here and it says he's not playing bass on this song. Yeah. Trevor right. Horn, the guy what? who plays John Anderson. What? The guy who plays John Anderson. <laughs> what is going on with this album? Yeah, right. And and there's some nice stuff at the end of this uh, song. I like I love the the fade out. It's just this really cool fretless bass. And I I know some people don't like fretless bass, but it works really well with the synths and the kind of new wave vibe. Mm. It's not new wave in like playing note for note it's just the atmosphere 
yeah great outro to the song it's a really cool it's kind of a it's actually a simple song there's not really mm-hmm. it's not prog for time changes and key changes and all that but it's still kind of a proggy tune it's a new wave proggy tune so all so right. well oh go ahead let me just say one last thing i can't believe we're on the last track already boy time flies <laughs> and that brings us to Tempest Fugit. That's cheeky, George. Yes. <laughs> That's cheeky, see, isn't it? I see what you did there, because Tempest Fugit is Latin for time flies. This song is less than five and a half minutes, but it has the feel of something longer and more epic. It's proggy, but compact somehow. After an initial cool riff that starts the song, it goes into an even cooler riff driven by Squire's bass. Howe's tone is searing through this part, but then he uses a cleaner tone for the rhythm downbeats. Downs uses a vocoder for the yes parts. The song moves and has drive, and the frenzied guitar riff right before the two-minute mark sounds challenging to play. I like the jazzy yes chord. A cool song to finish the album with. I can only say cool music so many times. All the players are so far above my mere human ability that all I can do is sit back and marvel at their ability to create such controlled chaos. I like that controlled chaos because that's what Chris Squire's bass sounds like on this song. This is one of his signature bass play. It's he's used this the basic riff that he plays because he's the lead lead bass player on this that he's used for years in his his solo on stage when he does his solo called the fish and he goes off and plays all these different parts like sound chaser from Relayer. This always gets thrown in there and it's always really cool to hear. And you're always like, please just play the whole song. John Anderson, you jerk, just sing it. <laughs> Cause I'm, he's never wanted to do other parts of yes. And when he sings and it's understandable he's lead singer, but anyway, I, I love this song again. I think Trevor Horn kind of conjures him a little bit more on this song. There's great vocals between the rest of the the band when they sing together. There's a slight kind of ska feel on the guitar playing on this a little bit. It has there's a little bit of police type reggae, which yes. they didn't play reggae itself, but they embraced the reggae vibe and ska thing. I don't think was ska even a thing at this point, or were they kind oh, of yeah. one of those bands that was starting to create that sound from England? And it's you can hear it you hear it on signals from rush you hear it on this song a little bit and his guitar playing is really sharp like that and it's kind of cool and my comment here is makes me wonder if the police influenced them on this song and i'm I'm, i would guess that they did at that point because the police were one of the biggest bands in the world at this point only gonna get bigger which is crazy there's a lot of twists and turns there's some great guitar work there's great bass work the drums are great alan white actually shines on this song and it was at this point, he was still a great drummer. As he got older, he his drumming style became more reserved, but he was great on this album. I like some of the keyboards. I think Jeff Downs was spectacular. This, like you guys said, a short song that packed a punch. It feels yeah. like it's just an epic song. It's a great way to end. So my questions are, is this song good? Yes, yes. <laughs> Does Chris Squire slay? Yes, yes. was this a great song to end the album yes yes i don't know what i'm referring to (laughs) that's the opening lyric yes yes 
And then you could hear the background, the the bass is rumbling and getting ready to get big again. Yeah. Very cool. It kind of, the bass playing almost reminds me a little bit of Heart of the Sunrise, the way how it builds, it goes up, up, mm. and it comes back down. And this song has a little bit of that. It doesn't sound anything like Heart of the Sunrise. So all you no. Yes Hobbit purists, settle yes. down out there. <laughs> like I, I like Yes just as much as you do. That's right, yeah. And I had to bite my tongue for all the tales for traffic graphics motions bashing that i had to endure i told you if every song on an album was 10 minutes yeah it would have been their greatest album ever i totally agree oh no we gotta go it doesn't need to go we gotta meander for another five or ten minutes hey guys i found some more percussion instruments let me (laughs) add five more minutes let me just kind of bash on it yeah okay okay that's cool i'm gonna just sing here in the corner for an hour All right, let's wrap it up here. This version of Yes toured following this album. Trevor Horn had a hard time singing the earlier catalog, and the the band split up in early 1981. Subsequently, they reunited with John Anderson, and he never really wanted to sing these songs, so much of this material didn't get played live until 2008 when they replaced Anderson with singer Benoit David, who had been singing in a Yes tribute band. They replaced him in 2012 with John Davison, and he's still their vocalist. In 2016, they actually played all of drama in its entirety, along with sides one and four of Tales from Topographic Oceans, John. I know, it's just such a bizarre one over the three hours? Yeah. Oh, well, this was a dream set list for me. Squire, Squire was definitely missed since he had passed away in 2015. It was the last time I saw them live. And I lost interest in their studio output since Squire's passing. To wrap it up, Drama is an excellent Yes album that showed the band could really rock. I To carry on there, I said this is much more of a rocking album than I anticipated going in. The playing is beyond ridiculously good. I liked it. I suspect for you guys this was like the last hurrah before the wheels fell off with 90125, which I did my research and realized that this was supposed to be, or that rather was 90125 was supposed to be a separate band called cinema. Yeah. And that's true. They didn't want it to be. Yes. But then they they brought John back in. John came in. It's like, well, okay, we got to do this. But, but I get it because I mean, I like the stuff on 901 or I like owner of a lonely heart and one or two other ones. But after I finished this album, just as a little, test i like went straight into that and i was like oh yeah it's just like a, a monkey beating on a rock compared to <laughs> compared to the to compared to drama i was like okay i get it it's a <laughs> drastic change more a drastic monkey. than metallica between injustice and the black album <laughs> a monkey beating on a rock <laughs> i'm just saying that it was not nearly as technical <laughs> and you have to see george the way he did <laughs> The beating on the rock. It just, it, it's it like was perfect. The most robotic monkey beating it's on the rock. It's like those little, little drummer boy. That got, they clap. It <laughs> they go, yeah. George is just like one hand clapping, but he was pounding on the I rock, am the so. sound of one hand clapping. Right, I'm going to have to take umbrage with what you said. I actually like 90125 a lot. Yeah, I, I do. Oh, see, I, I didn't think you did because every oh, time I, I say no. Owner of a Lonely love Heart, it. you give me crap. Because Owner of a Lonely Heart is like the song. It's become pretty much their best known song, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Well, like amongst, uh, like in the popular, like not yes. among non yes fans. It's become their stairway to heaven on the radio for, yeah. for mm-hmm. me. 
and, and so I like it. However, I like the live version better because they have the intro from Make It Last attached to the beginning of Owner of a Lonely Heart. But songs like Hold On, Changes, It Can yeah. Happen. Oh, yeah. Arts. I digress oh, then. I crap. Did, those songs are awesome. I did yeah, not know yeah. that you actually liked the album. It was just the oh, song. I Got saw it. them oh, three yeah. times on that tour. All right. know? And I will take umbrage. I do think Trevor Raven is a great guitar player. I don't care what old Yes fans say. Yeah. But I agree. I really wish they were called Cinema. I, I just do. Yeah. And I really wish we got that 20 minute song that we'll never ever hear that's never been leaked online. So, anyway, it was probably uh, just something off of topographic. Oh, no. Hey, look, I, I love some of their long songs. Close to the Edge and Gates of Delirium are two of the 10 greatest prog epics ever in my mind. I don't, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it just, and I do like the revealing science of God. It's just, all right, does it have to be 20? three minutes long. <laughs> so anyway, uh, real quick to my points on this. I love drama. It's definitely one of my favorite. Yes. Albums. I don't care that there's a different singer. I think he was right for this album, yep. but he'd been right going forward. That's a whole different story. But for this particular album, it worked really well. I thought Jeff Downs did a decent job. He didn't have to be Rick Wakeman. He didn't have to be, was it Patrick Moraz? Didn't have to be those guys. That's okay. It works. And I think it's a great album. I wish they would have continued with this sound. I wish Rush would have continued with that sound. And I wish the band Saga would have continued with this sound a little bit longer than they did before they fully embraced the 80s. We can debate whether those albums are good or not on a different episode, but I think it's a great album. Yeah, I think you make a good point because I really kind of wish that this lineup had done at least one more album. One more, at least at one At least more. one more, because I really wonder what that would have been like if they had just had that chance to kind of explore that sound just for a little longer. Because yeah. I, I think when you've got like, when, when you think about the people that were in that band... And you've got Rick Wakeman, you've got John Anderson, you've got a a number of different people bringing music to that band. I'm sure it was like a battle for people to like, to kind of get their, get their stuff kind of into the band. And when you take out two big songwriters and two, it gives more room for, this is where like basically Squire and Howe had to really step up to be the primary songwriters of this band other than of course the 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 horn and downs stuff that they brought in as buggles but like when when you think about like how much uh squire and how had to do on this album because the, the because of the lack of the songwriting that you would have gotten from wakeman and john anderson i i think it almost benefits the band because you don't have all these ideas and stuff getting crammed in. And I think that's why this kind of sounds more focused and more taut because it just, it's leaner and you've got one primary idea that's coming through or maybe two. And, and they, uh, I I think sometimes some of the yes music at that time prior to this was starting to, suffer from multiple like everybody's playing and it's just it's too much they had to trim the fat no doubt i agree with you i will i will say what's interesting you brought up something about them being leaner and more to the point and more direct it's obvious that this album 
ended up leading to a prog supergroup that became a very popular and now a meme, unfortunately, mm-hmm. thanks to 40-year-old Virgin, which is kind of funny. But this kind of led to the formation of Asia. Yeah. With yeah, Jeff Downs and Steve Howe getting together right. with Carl Palmer and John Wetton. And I'll be honest, you can hear a little bit of the crossover between the two, not as proggy on, on Asia's first album, but it's there a little bit. So No, but, but Howe's guitar style... Mm-hmm. definitely so. is translated over to Asia. Like the things that he was doing in Asia, he was doing on this album. Yes. It started here. Yeah. I agree. All right. So before we wrap this up, TR, where does this fit? I asked this question earlier, where does this fit on your yes? Just, and you have to say just for today, I can live with that. So I will say this is definitely top three. Oh uh, yeah. All right. One is obviously tales from topographic ocean. <laughs> just kidding. I don't know if I would put All that right. up there. But I, I, I don't, and I don't, it's so hard for me to rate these because honestly, of each of these albums, each of these Yes albums kind of has a whole different mood and vibe, and there's different great things about each but one. But for right now, who do you got ahead of it? I, I don't know who I would put ahead of it. When, when I, so, it just seemed like number three. Yeah, exactly. Well, like, it's like there's got to be something. There has to be a one or two. Yeah, I mean, I know what one of them is. One of them has to be close to the edge. I know that you love that. Well, album. yes, close to the edge is an excellent album. Um, and, and you know, the thing is, is like there are parts of other albums like Fragile and the Yes album that are pretty good, but like as a whole cohesive album, it's like, I don't know if I'd put it all the way up there, but there's certain moments in those albums that are like, wow, this is really outstanding. And then again, like, yeah, there's parts of albums where you're like, man, this is really incredible. I love this part. But like Tails, it's, you know, if they maybe cut out some of this 10 minutes of meandering, I might have thought this was like the most awesome thing they ever did. Ritual would have been their best song ever had they done that. Yeah. So, right. yeah, I can't. Well, I, I'll commit real I quick. I just, okay, you do it. All right. And then maybe you'll see why not. Okay. So I don't have, I flip flop on my number one. It goes back and forth. So I have a 1A and 1B and they flip flop. Okay. 1A and 1B, not, this is not the order today. They're just, they're up there. It's close mm. to the edge and relayer. Those are my two favorite mm. yes albums. Okay. Generally, relayer gets the nod because I think, the Gates of Delirium is their best song they ever wrote. That's just me, my mm-hmm. personal opinion. But then I listen to N U and I Siberian Cut True, and I'm like, that's, right. that's better than the second side of of Real Air. So that's my one A one B. I would put the Yes album at three because the mm-hmm. Yes album was similar structurally to Drama. Only six songs, a couple mm-hmm. short ones, some long ones, but I do like the deeper tracks. Like, can't even think of the song now. Perpetual Change. Yeah, God, I kept thinking of perpetual motion. I don't know why. <laughs> and then this is where it gets dicey. Drama kind of pushes up to four because as much as I love Fragile, I could get rid of the fluff on Fragile too. Oh uh, yeah, there's some fluff on there. You know, five percent for nothing. I would rather take nothing. Thank you. Yeah, but Mood for Days great, and the Fish yeah. are great. I like those songs. We yeah. Are Heaven could get dumped in the. <laughs> oh, here goes John Anderson with the trees again. But so it. It's 4A and 4B with me when it comes to fragile and, and mm. drama. So, okay. I'll leave yeah. it at that. Right. I'm anyway. starting to understand what Matt feels like on the other podcast. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> on that note. <laughs> All righty. So we have our third album. I'm really curious to see what you guys think about this because I 
picked a different album. For my album, again, it's in that range of 1980 to 1983 that I just can't get out of, which is, I got to move on. I got to break out of this at some point, but there's so many good albums. I went with Bloister Colt's Fire of Unknown Origin, released in 1981 on June 22nd. It was recorded in the spring of 1981. It was the band's, I believe, eighth album. Yes, I'm having trouble reading my notes because it's late in the night. And it was the last album to feature all the original members that started with the first album, not all physical original members. Some people like to talk about well, that guy. He played like one note in somebody's garage. He's the original guitarist. Not that kind. These are all the five band members that have been with the band since the first album. This was the last one to feature them. It was a return to form for the band, at least on a commercial level with the song that kind of broke out as one of their big songs called Burner For You. I'm sure you've all heard that if you're into classic rock. It's probably their most consistent album since their album Secret Treaties that came out in 1974. All the band members contribute on this album. Not only are they all great musicians, but they all contribute to writing. And there are three different singers in the band, although one, Eric Bloom, sings the majority of the songs on this album. It features some great musicianship from their guitarist, Buck Drama, which is not Dharma. his real name. Buck Dharma. Dharma. Drama <laughs> sounds he's, better. He's got done with the album, Drama. Yeah. Spell check. <laughs> Jerk. So, Dharma. <laughs> thank you. Which now makes me think of the show Lost. when I, say I know, that. yeah. The Dharma Initiative. So, exactly. What was that all about? The album uh, has an interesting history in that they were pegged to do the soundtrack, or at least some of the songs, to the animated film heavy metal which came out at that time which was based on the kind of adult racy animated magazine heavy metal but ended up only having one track on the soundtrack itself which was not intended for the album to begin with which is kind of interesting you probably wouldn't know a lot of these songs if you're not a blister cult fan but i think this album is packed with some of their their great songs in itself there are some songs you've probably heard if you are a classic rock fan. We'll get to those in a bit. But again, there's only one super standout on this album, which is Burner For You. And for a band that's been around for 50 plus years, they only have a few songs that people probably know off the top of their head if they're not big fans of the band. Three. There's really three. That's it. Godzilla, you've heard that because he picks up a bus and he throws it back down. Go, go, Godzilla. <laughs> and you all have had a fever for some cowbell. For Don't Fear the Reaper. So you've heard those songs and you've heard Burner For You, but that's about it. Yep. Sadly, this band's underrated and they're mischaracterized as a metal band. They're not a metal band. They're heavy and they've influenced a boatload of metal bands in the past. They have. They've influenced even bands like Opeth that TR and I have seen a gazillion times. I know, George, you like some of their stuff. Yeah. They've influenced just about everyone in hard rock and metal and you may not know it. With that said... Let's get into it. Anyone have a, well, actually, before we go, do you guys have anything to say about it? When we were picking albums after the last episode, John was acting all like, oh man, I hope you guys don't hate this one too much. And I got worried, <laughs> like maybe he was going to choose yes. <laughs> but I did that. <laughs> but when he said Blue Oyster Cult, I was like, bro, I'm all in, all in. 
I'm not as well versed in BOC as I would like to be, but I've always been a fan in one way or another for as long as I've been into rock music. So I was ready to dive into the tracks on this one that I did not know. Cool. They are. So BOC is a band that I never really got into. I called it. I know the hits and thought some of their songs were pretty cool, but didn't get any of their albums. My buddy Alex has always liked them and tried to get me into them, as did my buddy Colin. And they were both convinced that this would be a band that I would get into. I can't explain it, but I just never got hooked. That's the who. This, this album has many of the ingredients of what I would like. Multiple guitars produced by Martin Birch, tracks used in the movie Heavy Metal. So I was eager to give it another try. And I'm grateful that John picked this album. I'm really glad to hear your friends have been trying to get you to like them because this is a band, either you like them or you don't. However, when you, I say you don't, it doesn't mean you hate them. You just can't get into them. I don't know any fans that like, oh, I hate Boys or Colt. They're always like, I just never got it. And that's a completely different thing. And there's a reason why. They're kind of weird. They are. <laughs> They're kind of yeah. strange. They're a little quirky. They're quirky. Quirky yeah. is the best way to describe this band. And you stole my damn notes. Ah. And that's pretty much how to describe them. And no better album to, to, to show that than this one, which is a quirky album. It's strange. It's weird. And it's great. At least I think <laughs> it is. So let's kick it off. The album opens with Flyer of Unknown Origin, which is the title track. This was originally intended for their fourth album, Agents of Fortune from 1976 it was a b-side kind of and it never really gained any traction the original is just okay it's not that great this one's a killer tune it opens it's a great opener of hard rock mixed in with those early 80 cents this is a band that really embraced that synth sound but they kind of did it in a cheeky way a little bit there's a bit, of, there's a bit of sense of humor with this band they're not goofy i think they they take themselves seriously with their playing and songwriting, uh -huh. but they don't take themselves seriously at all. I think they have a little bit of fun with some of their lyrics. They go in different places and this is no better place than this is actually the best place to start when it comes to that there's a driving base to it. There's these swirling synths and you think the song's going to go one way. And then here comes some great guitar work from Buck, who's just, in my opinion, one of the most underrated hard rock guitarists ever. He's so good. I don't know how you guys feel about him, but I just feel like everything he does is tasteful. And it, even when he goes off, he doesn't go off in a wankery. He just, it seems like every note is perfectly placed uh -huh. for what he's trying to do. The chorus is catchy as hell. It's just a great example of how they can meld hard rock sensibilities, new wave, with this eclectic flair all mixed into one. The lyrics, I believe, are written by Patti Smith. I think you've all heard of her. What they're about, I have no idea. I've heard some people say that she wrote them about Jim Morrison's death. Some people say this is about extraterrestrials dying in a car crash or disease or any other kind of unknown death. Or smoke maybe, another one. Maybe it just represents that burning passion that consumes people. Who knows? It's up to interpretation. But the most important aspect of this song, and I mean, this is the most important. This You can set this in stone. George will appreciate this. This song was used in season one, episode 17 of the television show, 
Supernatural. Oi. Entitled Hell House, the episode. Writer Trey Calloway is a longtime Blazer Cult fan. Thank you, Trey, for including this wonderful song in the greatest television show ever. Yes, it is. Dean and Sam would approve. Hell yeah. So I didn't have a lot to say. I said there's a nice solid beat. I liked the synth's contrast. I disagreed with you on the, you said it was very hooky. I didn't, I'm not disagreeing with that, but I said it was a subtle vocal melody, but cool. Like it wasn't shout, shout, shout at the devil. It was, I would agree. Yes. It's it, a very subtle it's song. Subtle, everything it does, but it's subtle in a way that makes you go, Hmm. You know? Um, and I don't remember why I said this now because I don't remember the words, but I said, I can't help make a lyrical comparison to, the Ramones KKK took my baby away. <laughs> oh, I, I, I can get that. Yes. Okay. And then I yeah. ended with solid album opener. Yeah. And I think hooky when I mean are catchy, meaning once it grabs a hold of you, it does not release you. Yeah. No, I can and agree just, with that. And it builds and kind of. Becomes yeah. So great. I can attest to that. And so this has a cool groove and a driving beat. It's pretty catchy. And I found myself randomly singing the chorus during the day as I was getting prepared for this. Mm-hmm. It's kind of insidious because what, like initially I listened to this and I thought, Oh yeah, it's pretty good. It's all right. Yeah. Whatever. Subtle. And then later it was just like, fire the new origin took my, my baby, baby away. away. Yeah. And then it like, it gets into your mind. It's and almost so, melodramatic a little bit too without does. being and, and, over you know, excessive. <laughs> so, and I'll get to this later, but like there, there's an element to Mark, is it Mark Bloom? Eric Bloom. Eric Bloom. Yeah. So there's an element to Eric Bloom's vocals where I feel like he's a decent singer, but there are some tracks on this album where it feels like he's singing, but his vocals aren't like as powerful as they could be. They do not extend themselves as vocalists at all. Yes. And that was like one of my biggest disappointments of this album. And I'll get to some of that later. But like this track, some of the vocals on this track kind of seemed a little weak to me. Like it just seemed like it could have been a little subtle. It just I don't know how to explain it, but just it seemed like and I know he also plays guitars. Yes. And I know like he was more probably more of a guitarist than a singer when he joined this band because I think like they, you know, discovered he could sing and it was like, oh, why don't you be the singer? And so I kind of feel like, yes, he's the lead singer from this band and he's the main the primary singer for this band, but I don't feel like he sings because he can and it's like but I don't think he was like a real singer. Like I think he was like I don't think he was like classically trained as a singer. Oh no, I agree, I agree and, with that. And yeah. you can tell that. Like I mean, he's an adequate singer and there are certain songs on this album where he sings really well and I'll get to that later. But this song it was kind of like, man, like if he just put a little more into it, it kind of probably would have even been better. If you just yeah. tried a little yeah, just try a little harder. Yeah. I and I wonder if this band is a band that realized we shouldn't extend past what we are capable of doing. Huh. And it well, just makes me wonder that sometimes because the vocals from all three singers on this album, nobody pushes it. 
They no. they kind of stay in their lane. They're, and yeah, they're adequate, right? Like they're, it's yeah. like this is acceptable. This is and like okay. Nobody's a bad singer by any no, means. No, no, but, but nobody's like good, a, really but, a great singer either. You know what I mean? Like it, it, there's no, no well, there's no there's nobody that's just like yeah, exactly, obviously. yeah. So and but there's no Vince Neils either. No, thankfully. Ooh. Oh, so and then the only other thing that I've mentioned about this is it, it and I don't even know why because it doesn't really sound like it. And it sounds nothing like it, but it, 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 and maybe it's just like the keyboard sounds or the vibe of this song, but it reminded me of Street of Dreams by Rainbow, which came mm. out a little bit after this. Huh. I don't know why it, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't sound like it, but no. like for some reason, like I, and I think the fact that it's just, maybe it's the tones of the keyboards and the other, just the recording quality and everything of that. It's just that same period of time when right. that was recorded and maybe Martin Birch did that album. I don't know, but it kind of reminded me of that for some reason. The interesting thing about this song is that when you hear those synths at the beginning, you're like, Oh no, you kind of do that. And then you, <laughs> yeah, hear, it's like, what? you hear Buck's guitar come in right after that intro. And he goes like, Oh no, this is going to be cheesy. Yeah. And then they go to the next section. He does this really cool guitar thing. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, okay, that, part that I thought was Jesus kind of cool. Now it kind of goes with this <laughs> and that's how this, I agree. That's how this song got me. At first I was like, I don't know if I like this. And then after the third play, I'm like, Oh my God, my head's exploding. I love this song so much. <laughs> and I think that's the subtle catchiness of this song. Yeah. All right. These are all great comments. I wanted to hear all different stuff from how I feel. I will say this is one of my early albums. This is one of the ones like my first 10 vinyl albums I ever bought. This was one of them. Nice. Yeah. So, or was it some enchanted evening, the live album? One of the two, I can't remember, but this was up there. So the second song on this album is one of their biggest songs. And it wasn't even intended for the album. It was supposed to be in on book Dharma's solo album called flat out, but he was convinced by the manager. I've also read the band convinced him, but they convinced him to include this on the album. And boy, was that a smart choice because this song blew up for them. And sadly, this is one of the only songs that blew up for them up to this point, I should say, because everything after this it gets a little sketchy for me. But if you haven't heard it, I'd be surprised if you're a hard rock fan. This is burning for you. How could you have not heard this? This is a staple still on, on radio today. It's a classic rock, iconic song. It's on all the time. It's my Stairway to Heaven off this album. You're like, oh, God. <laughs> I <laughs> never is... get tired of hearing of this song. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's like Deliverance from Opeth. They're like... Tara and I, every time geez, I hope they just play something different, then it starts yeah, to like, and then, it, and then and it's, it's like, like oh. yeah. and then like halfway through, and like, then the neck. very end, yeah, when they come in at the end, yeah, and then I'm like, my neck, ah, because I'm headbanging, <laughs> and that's what this song is for me. As soon as it starts, you're like, Ugh. because I've heard it at least a thousand times. Then you get to the middle song, you're like, this song is so freaking good, it's unreal. <laughs> it's such a well written song, it's incredibly played. There's really not much to say about it if you haven't heard it. It was heavy rotation on MTV when it was there. And this is one that features Buck Darm on vocals. This is one he sings on two of their three biggest hits, which is kind of funny because he also sings on Don't Fear the Reaper. It's just a great hard rock song. It's structurally written really well. Everything is placed, everything from intro to verse to bridge to chorus to solo, to ending the song. It's all done. Again, I'm not big on lyrics, but I find their lyrics kind of interesting. 
I think this one, again, is longing, pursuit, passion for love. I mean, it's interesting that these are their first two lyrical contents, and then they get a little weird after that. It's slightly a little... It's just a great song. If you haven't heard it, go listen to it. It's Do it now! And it's also a sad song because it makes me realize, why wasn't this band bigger? Because they're so influential. They had so many great albums. But this is all people now, unfortunately, so... This was the monster single on the album, I said. I've loved this one for decades. It's catchy as hell. Again, the drum and bass are tight. Guitar hangs out on the side until the chorus, and then it kicks into overdrive. And I would say this probably gets as much airplay as Don't Fear the Reaper. Possibly more. I mean, I hear them both, but I feel like I hear this one more frequently. But maybe that's just my XM channel. Well, I think it gets classic rock and then it also gets the 80s channel. So I think it it kind of spills over to a couple different channels, which I think you're right. I think it does get more airplay. And it might even be like a more pop song than... Oh, I agree. Don't Fear the Reaper. I mean, Don't Fear the Reaper is kind of a like... It's got that solo that's like in a different key. I mean, it's just, it's weird. Like it's a little different and it's a little more progressive than this song is. A little more niche. Yeah, but yeah, definitely the hit, and for good reason. It's catchy throughout. The riffs are killer. The harmonized dual guitar leads and a great solo. I have the 45 of this, and I played it practically wore it out. (laughs) Yes, this song is a standout. So then we move to the third song, which is the song that was included on the heavy metal soundtrack, and that is the song Veteran of Psychic Wars. This is a kind of bombastic synth-soaked song with marching drums throughout it as the foundation. The vibe is bleak but powerful. It's a great twist on the album, but a great song that kind of just takes you to a different place. Now it's become more sci-fi all of a sudden on this album. Things just got weird really fast, and I kind of dig it. If there was a soundtrack for a science fiction film at this time, this might be included on it. Oh, wait, there was. It was called oh, Heavy yeah. Metal. What? <laughs> what? I'm talking real science fiction, like with uh, real actors. Come all on. All right. Okay. But you I mean, could see this song. I mean, like being space used. balls. <laughs> no, it's great. I actually. Thank you. <laughs> you and your wife are making whoopee. <laughs> That's a newlywed game reference Sorry, yeah. for you older folks. Yes. I actually, TR, I think on this song, I think Eric Bloom's vocals really do match because I don't think he does too much he doesn't try to do too much and i think it kind of gives it more of a dramatic and dynamic feel it's not yeah. over the top but it kind of fits you kind of mm-hmm. feel like you can understand who the protagonist is in this song yeah, uh, yeah. which kind of is cool the song lyrics were written uh, by cyberpunk godfather michael moorcock is that his name really Besides, yeah yes well, he's the elric guy that's more fantasy yeah I stole some stuff from online. I borrowed some of this stuff, you know? I didn't oh, realize that That's at the interesting. Time. That makes sense. And he's a science fiction author and editor of the New World's Magazine. I did not know that. As much as I like BOC, I'm not a super fan. They have super fans that really know a lot about this band. I'm not one of them. I just love a lot of their stuff. To me, it's it was great that they included this on the heavy metal soundtrack. It fits. It's one of the... It's one of the better songs on the soundtrack, even though I love almost all the songs on that soundtrack for as weird as they are and for them not being very metal. And it's a true Blister Cold classic, in my opinion. 
So I said that this was another well-known track. I don't know if it actually is, but I was aware of it anyway. And, but to be honest, I never really heard it all that much. So it was kind of cool to focus on it. After focusing on it, I said, it's a very cool tune that maybe isn't as commercial as radio would favor. It's got sci-fi storytelling, but it has really cool atmosphere that backs up the storytelling. And I was curious, but uh, now that you've mentioned Michael Moorcock, maybe not. I was thinking that given the year that this came out, is this possibly a commentary on post-Vietnam PTSD? I believe, yeah, I think there's, I could be mistaken, but I thought that was, some people speculated that about the song. Yeah, because just Mm -hmm. the, the, I don't know, the the feeling that comes through in the lyrics. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, that's probably tied in, but I, I, it seems more of like a relationship song, right? Like where somebody's in a relationship with somebody else that is just an energy vampire. Kind of, yeah, maybe because at the end is it's like, he's saying, is this victory basically like somebody has kind of defeated him. And it, it I, that was my interpretation of it. Maybe like, I, I mean, I was all know, like starship I, troopers on this. <laughs> maybe well. that well it could be i don't know i mean like but my interpretation was more of like almost like a relationship huh. and like being in this relationship with somebody that just like has like mentally drained you completely i don't know that's the interesting thing about their lyrics i think they're really open to interpretation because you can glean a lot of stuff from their lyrics yeah you wouldn't be wrong necessarily your interpretation yeah exactly there are multiple interpretations i guess that you could take of this right no and i i I could see what you're saying yeah definitely okay cool so i i said obviously again the track used in heavy metal which is cool i remember thinking ironic yeah exactly the fact that like they didn't even intend this for that movie but they used it for it I remember thinking that the lyrics were kind of weird, like don't let these shakes go on. I mean, I don't know. That was kind of weird to me, but they PTSD, man, but they make sense with the whole vibe of the song. The rat-a-tat of the drums, give it a militaristic feel, which is fitting. I really like the guitar solo section. All right. So move on to song four, soul survivor. It's a short song coming in just at four minutes. It's a little bit slower song. It kind of starts off with this steady bass and drum beat and then kind of switches into some swirly synths. The chorus is somewhat bombastic and it sounds to me like they've got another singer on there. Oh yeah, that's right. They do. Carla DeVito, who I guess was at the time somewhat of a a well-known singer, but it's kind of unusual to hear female vocals with the BOC song Uh, thematically. It's kind of a follow-up storyline to the veteran of psychic wars. Again, I'm borrowing this information from other people's opinions on the songs because I really don't know how to interpret their lyrics sometimes. Because you're right, you know, that sometimes you the, the yes of hard rock. Some of their lyrics, yeah, they just some they don't make sense, and that's I think kind of the charming aspect of the band where they don't necessarily take themselves fully serious. I mean, come on, they wrote a song about Godzilla. Yeah, it's like mm-hmm. the greatest monster song ever written. Yeah, so I wouldn't say this is one of my favorite songs off the album, but I and it seems like two different songs a little bit from the verse versus the chorus a little bit. Yeah. The chorus is a little more bombastic, and bombastic might be a 
bombastic might be a bombastic description of that because it's not that big but it, yeah. the course is a little bigger mm-hmm. and it's a decent song i like it and it kind of breaks up the vibe a little bit of the album and takes you down a, a, a notch just to kind of give you a okay we've had three big songs to lead off the album and let's slow it down a little so i was not familiar with this one but it didn't take long to dig its hooks into me and to me it sounded that like lyrically it could be a sequel to veteran because it kind of continues. It's like I was in the psychic war. Now I'm the sole survivor. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I really love the upfront bass playing on the whole album so far. It's very not Jason Newstead on Metallica and justice for all (laughs) or Um, Nikki six on. (laughs) Yeah. And then there's the line cursed with second sight. Is this a possible future inspiration for maiden's seventh son perhaps yeah so the chorus is pretty catchy but the rest of the song didn't do too much for me the solo was cool and i like the guitar tones on this song but john i'll I'll agree with you like it it felt like when i listened to this song i kind of felt like they had this catchy chorus and they're like, what do we do with this? We got to kind of fill it out somehow. And they added the rest of the song to it. And you got to get through the lyric to get to the, the catchy chorus, it seems like. I don't know. That's how I felt when I listened to this. Like, like that. hey, we got this cool chorus and it's catchy and it's going to stick in your mind. But the rest of the song kind of just like, I don't know, it kind of vanished for me. I don't know. In retrospect, no, I- the, the Soul Survivor chorus kind of reminds me of a rainbow song. Not a specific one, but just like it could have been one. So survivor, I don't know. Ignore well, I me. Think, I think the influence of Martin Birch is pretty apparent yes. on this song. Or this uh, album. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Uh, you know, and I think that shows. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, TR, at all. I actually like during the verse, which there's not really much to the verse musically, but I do like the kind of synth atmosphere that they create on it, which... Mm is now a complete opposite of the quirky kind of, I wouldn't say cheesy, but those type of scents off of Fire Run on Origin. I mean, they kind of run the gamut here on things that they're doing, which mm-hmm. they never stick to one thing, which I think is interesting about this album because that becomes even more apparent that they're going to switch things up again with the fifth song, which is called Heavy Metal, the Black and Silver. It's the shortest song on the album, I love this song. This is a song that I really gravitated towards as a kid because it's the heaviest song on the album. It's their most metal song on the album, even though they're not a metal band. And I just love the jagged, kind of rough, abrasive guitar sounds that Buck creates on this song. I think it's great. It's got, again, some interesting vocals. I'm not as harsh on Eric Bloom. I don't think you're being harsh on him, but I kind of think he's a little better. Maybe not great, but I I like him on this song for some reason. It works for me. The bass is kind of thundering in the background. I think it becomes apparent they're all great musicians. Outside of Buck, I don't think anyone stands out as like a virtuoso. I think he he's an underrated guitar player by like leaps and bounds, but they're all really good musicians and they sound so good as a band. And it shows. The lyrics apparently were inspired by the 1977 book, The Iron Sun, Crossing the Universe Through the Black Holes by... Adrian Barry, don't know it, kind of interested now about it since I found that. I was like, this song's kind of cool, so maybe I'll check it out. And it's also the third song released Uh in 1981 called 
heavy metal. We've got the song Heavy Metal off of the heavy metal soundtrack and also off of the album called Standing Hampton by Sammy Hagar. Oh, yeah. We also have the song called Heavy Metal, Taking a Ride on Heavy Metal. Mr. Don Filder. Thank you. That's so wrong. Off of what album? The album Heavy Metal. Yes. From what movie? The movie Heavy Metal, I think. (laughs) That decided not to use heavy metal in their soundtrack. So I just thought it was really funny that we have three songs off of these three songs, three songs that came out right around this time that are all called well, heavy metal. That's why I thought it was ironic that there's a song from this album on the heavy metal soundtrack, but it's not that one. And I don't think that was, I think this song might've been inspired by the heavy metal soundtrack and being involved, but I don't think this was ever intended to be part of that album or part of that soundtrack. I'm not sure about that. I've never been able to find enough information about what was and wasn't supposed to be on the album outside of one song, Mm. but apparently they were tagged to potentially do the soundtrack, which would have been kind of interesting if they did. One thing I did not know is that this song apparently is part of a continuum of works that make up something called cold light, which was an epic, which is represented on a bunch of different songs from the band as I understand it. I could be wrong. I got this from a site called genius.com. Somebody posted that. So I don't know if that's true or not. I just thought it was kind of interesting. That's all I got for the song. Other than the fact, I just love it. It's the shortest song. I know it's not a fan favorite, but I think it's a great deep cut from the band. Yeah. I remember hearing this one on the old eighties radio show, metal shop. You guys remember that? Mm-hmm. And I, I taped it off the radio. So I had this on an old cassette tape. Definitely the riffage is on the heavier side. And it's another one that still gets some radio play. And I liked the use of feedback towards the end. So I said, oh man, this rocks. This this sounds like Dio led rainbow. Bloom's vocals sound the best on this song. This should have been in the movie. This might be my favorite track on the album. And John, this is what I was getting at. Like Bloom sounds like he really put his whole effort into like really singing on this. Whereas on the other songs, it's kind of like he's singing it, but it's not like he's really concentrating on making the vocals perfect. And I get that you you don't need to make everything perfect all the time, but on this song, you can tell like it was like, I don't know if someone was coaching him or like, Hey, you need to really put something into it. But like his vocals on this sound phenomenal. And I really wish that I really wish that had kind of permeated the other songs. Cause I think it would have really given this album a little more of a boost. If his vocals had been this good on the rest of the album. It just makes me wonder how much Martin Birch had to do with this on the yeah. vocals. Being... I kind of feel like that, that because this, like I said, it sounds like Dio led rainbow, which Martin Birch would have been all over and I kind of think that this was like their rainbow song. Like, it's like, okay, let's do a song on this album that kind of has a rainbow feel to it. Okay, yeah, let's do this, heavy metal. I mean, he sounds like Dio on this. Like, not perfectly, but like, certainly like that range and the like the, even the inflections. I mean, it sounds like Birch was coaching him to sound, this is what you need to sound like, do this. And 
I think it sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like this is probably my favorite track on the album. Cause I think I, I really wish like more of the album had been like this. Cause it was, I've thought this was excellent. Clearly my yeah. rainbow comment was a song too early. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. <laughs> All right. So now we're going to move into the song that was actually intended for the heavy metal soundtrack. And that is vengeance. The pack. Now, this is an interesting song because it is actually sung by the bassist, Joe Bouchard, who I, it's at first I didn't realize it was him singing. Then I had to go back and listen again on him. I was like, oh, yeah, he's just slightly different than the other guys a little bit. And again, doesn't overextend himself singing, but it opens with this kind of cool, almost horror, 19 early 80s horror film soundtrack, you know, kind of vibe that it, then it shifts into these kind of large catchy riffs there's a kind of a bombastic chorus to it the guitar solo is simple but it's classy has kind of a dreamy feel when it comes in and i just like how the song kind of weaves back and forth and does all these different things the middle section again continues with this kind of dreamy real feel on the vocals and then out of nowhere Birch shows up and says, we're going to do some Maiden. We're going to get a giddy up on this song. And it almost becomes Maiden-esque, this gallop that they do, which is kind of cool. Because you're like, okay, where did that come from on this song? And it kind of, when I first listened to it, I was like, ah, there's too many things going on. I absolutely love this song now. I could see where somebody might not, but I kind of dig it. It's kind of a sneaky list and it grows on you with time. Maybe a little. Sneaky and cheeky. So now, yes, I mentioned this was originally intended for the movie Heavy Metal, but it was next because apparently the producers felt that the song, which described a 17-minute part of the film, they didn't like the fact that the song described and told the story in five minutes. Hmm. That merely doesn't make any sense to me, but they nixed it for that reason, apparently. And I'm sure I'm, I'm leaving out some details, but I just seems an odd thing to say, ah, oh, we don't like this song because it tells a 17 minute portion of the movie, which is all different storylines like the magazine. Well, I did it in five minutes. So screw those guys. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> mm. So, so this is interesting. This is the first, this is the first for me, but I didn't hear this song. I somehow missed this song. It's not, I, I just looked and it's the version on my phone does not have this song on the album. <laughs> no. So I don't know if it didn't get copied or what, but I got nothing because I haven't heard it. <laughs> oh, no. I'll try to help you out here, George. Um, so, yeah, written for the heavy metal movie, but not chosen for the film. It basically tells the story of the Tarna seg- segment. This would have been better than Devo's Through Being Cool, even though I like Devo. Um, With this, good. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I felt like this was a cool song, but I can understand how, like, if you're going to have the song play and it, it tells everything in five minutes, what you're going to do in 17, it, it might, I can see how that would be like, okay, we, if we're giving away the whole story in five minutes, I don't know. Maybe um, if you have it, maybe if you have it toward the end, like maybe that would be, that would work. Right. But I guess it's kind of weird because you would never play the whole five minutes during the movie. That's you, true. You play the yeah. parts of it. And so yeah. the, the idea is you would have to listen to the album beforehand. Now, you know, the story in five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. But I would think, Oh, but the movie's even longer. So I'm even more interested in this segment well, of the movie. Yeah. 
Although, so here's, so we talked a little bit about lyrics and some of the things like, so you, you said that you didn't think they were goofy, but I kind of feel like they were goofy. Like there are certain things that are goofy and wait, not, to not, this not, song? not as much on this song, but there, there is one line in this song that I, I thought, like, I thought I said their lyrics were kind of goofy and quirky though. No, but you said they, you said that they were quirky, but they didn't, they weren't goofy. Oh no, no. I meant goofy in the sense that they were completely not taking themselves seriously. Okay. I think there's a method to their madness, I guess is what yeah. I mean. Okay. That's this. fair. I mean, yeah. And I agree. I mean, so I think um, they know what, I think they know what they're writing is yeah. as opposed to just slopping junk together for their lyrics. And I can go with that. I think there's a line in here that like kind of bug me. And it's when he, that some of this is kind of like, and, and I'll, I'll pull a John here and I'll relate it to some other album that has nothing to do with this. But there were parts of this song where they're just kind of pushing a bunch of words together to tell a story, to fit it into the, to, to the song and the lyric um, that was reminiscent of like Genesis from like Battle of Epping Forest, where it's like there's too many words in this. There's too much that they're trying to squeeze into this lyric that they that it doesn't sound like, but you can fit it all in. And the one thing that really bugged me was instead of using the word stab, when he says he sticks, he, he says he sticks the, the sword and like I don't I can't remember what the lyric was, but it had something to do with sticking the sword in the bad guy. And instead of saying stabbing, he said, like, he sticks the sword in, she sticks the sword in the thing. And it's just like, I don't know, it just sounded dumb. It's like, why don't you use the word stab or something like more kind of brutal than like sticks it in? Like, from hell's hot, I stab at thee. Yeah, exactly. It's like, why wasn't it like stab? And so, so that was kind of like a disappointment on my part. Like, I don't know, it just hit me kind of the wrong way. But anyway, this was on the B side of the burning for you 45. So I had a little bit of familiarity with it because it like it was on the flip side of that record that I wore out. So anyway, I did like this song, but there were parts of it that I felt were like, okay, you're trying to put too many words to tell a story into this song. And it sometimes just felt like a little bit like, okay, you're squeezing too much into this. Is this the heavy metal song? Soundtrack one, Vengeance the Pack. We're still. No, that's what I meant. The one that was for heavy metal. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yes. Correct. So they packed in too many lyrics in five minutes, which is why I got it cut. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. The funny thing is, there's really, in terms of lyrical lines, there's not a lot of words. It's just it just goes on and on. But like songs like a, a Genesis song, like the lines on the stanza would be huge. There'd be a lot for each line before you got to the next line of the stanza. Yeah. So. Mm. Yeah. That's kind of how I felt about it. Like they were, it's like, then she did this and blah, blah, and then she went to this and they did this. And then it's like, okay, you're, you're saying a whole lot here, buddy. It's just like, it, it just seemed like they were packing so much into it. And I get it. They're trying to tell the story, but it just like, it just sounded like they were trying too hard to like pack it all in. I think the line you're referring to is I'll put an arrow in his head. Is that what you're referring to? No, no. Later on when she, he, he sticks her with the sword, he st- she sticks him with the sword or she sticks the sword in or something like that. Slide it in straight to the top. I'm actually reading the lyrics and I, I don't see that 
anywhere about stabbing someone with a sword. They don't use the word stab. That was the problem. Well, I don't see anything <laughs> that says sword, though. All right. Don't oh, there me. he goes. She sticks him with her sword. Yeah, she sticks him with the sword. That oh. sounded like like lame to me like that just she sticks it like eh, like it's it's very like it's very british i stick you with my sword i stick you and it's just like stabbing like you could have said the word stab there and she stabs him with the sword like that would have been like more like that would have been like a more brutal term but so the song needs to be more stabby got it maybe maybe she's petite tr i don't know Uh, yeah I don't know why that like why that got to me, but that just got to me. I don't know why. It's stupid, but like that was just like oh, stick someone with a sword. Come on, don't stick anyone with a sword. Welcome to the neurotic music right. podcast. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I was just gonna say, is it a double entendre? <laughs> oh, maybe. oh yeah, slide it in <laughs> exactly. Yeah, from the band White Snake. Hmm. Anyway, let's move on. We got a few more songs. So the next song called After Dark. This is a perfect example, again, of the quirkiness of this band. It's this kind of punky vibe with all these synths all over the place and all wrapped up into a rock song. It's it's the perfect song if you're looking for when this band gets weird, this song is weird. <laughs> it really is. It's got this punchy tempo, which is kind of nice. Another killer guitar solo on this I really like a lot. And lyrically, I've read things about vampirism. Maybe. I don't know. Isn't there a movie by that name? After Dark? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, Vampire movie, specifically. Yeah, but if you read the lyrics, you can get some of that from there, but you can get other things. I think they their lyrics are very interpretive, to say the least. (laughs) So, But there's not much really to say. It's, It's kind of a cool little punchy song. You know, it's not one of my favorites off the album, but it's decent, so... I liked how they used synth that would fit in perfectly with 80s pop, but blended in with actual rock music. I was kind of surprised I hadn't heard this one on the radio because I felt it had the hooks for it. The drum sound continues to be perfect. It stands out on its own, the drums, but doesn't interfere with everything else. I love a nice upfront drum that I just, I don't know. I guess, John, you might get that, but I mean... With Tommy Lee, you were like, it's too upfront, but this was like in the perfect spot. It was like, I could hear the drums. It's not drowning everything out. It's nice and punchy. Yeah. And I think you can thank Martin Birch for that yes. too. His balance has always been good on his albums. Thank you, yeah. Martin Birch. <laughs> I, know, I know you're dead, but thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So I said, this song is okay. The guitar solo is rocking, but this song didn't really grab me. And I'll agree, like the lyrics, after dark, I need you. After dark, I want you. After dark, it's just like, okay, we're saying after dark and we're throwing like some kind of other stuff that's like pretty basic. I I don't know. I just felt like they could have done a better job with the lyrics. It's catchy, like there's catchy parts to it, but it didn't really grab me. It's kind of stock. Yeah. You got to remember, I really think that's the grandmaster plan of this band is that if you take their lyrics too seriously, you might be spending too much time reading their lyrics. (laughs) You've already spent too much time. Yeah, and I'm not digging on UTR. I think that's... No, I know. I get it. But I think that's part of their the mad scientists of the band. It's yeah. not just the band writing shitty lyrics. <laughs> yeah, There's and plenty I, will of those say, I will say this, though. Like, th- there is a catchiness to it, right? Like, I mean, 
even though it's it may not be all that profound, the words sound kind of good together, right? Yeah, it's a little bit of what I talked about with Nikki Six. He found a way to put good words together for his choruses. It just yeah. they work. So, but yeah, I agree. I, I this song has grown on me a little bit, but it's not one I'm going. Hey, I got to put After Dark on first. <laughs> All right, so the next song, which had, was mildly successful for the band at yes. the time when it came out, is a song called Joan Crawford. So let's get weird because this <laughs> song is weird. Yeah, it like I said, mildly successful. It did decent job on the Billboard charts. It's a dark song, and it deals lyrically with the famous actress Joan Crawford. If you know anything about her, then you kind of get what where this is going. Uh-huh. It's somewhat tongue in cheek, especially with the lyric Joan Crawford has risen from the grave, which you're oh no, she's back. I hope she doesn't have any wire hangers. So <laughs> it's uh, like a misfit song. Yeah, it I'm glad you said that because my take was it reminded me a little bit of how Meatloaf had structured some of those early songs. It's got the big piano in it that kind of stands out and drives it, and it feels show tuny. But now that you mentioned the Misfits, it, I kind of see that too. I was never a super fan of this song, but the more I listen to it, the more I like it because it is so strange. It's and it's a fan favorite. Yeah. Fans love this song, and it, it just that lyric "Joan Crawford has risen from the grave" is so bizarre. But after a few listens, you're like, Joan Crawford is from the grave. You're like, yeah, she's back. Oh, yeah. You're all (laughs) pumped up, smashing beers on your head, you know, kind of thing. It's just a weird song. Yeah. I I love it. I heard this for the first time on Sirius XM like a year or two ago. I'd heard about it, but I I hadn't heard it. And I heard it and I thought it was a hoot (laughs) about the mother of the year, Joan Crawford from Mommy Dearest, a real terror (laughs) It sounds like so that it's fitting that it's a horror themed song and it's great. I mean, everything about this song I like. I like the classical style beginning of the song. The lyrics are a little too goofy for me. Oh, um, yeah. You need to lighten up, buddy. I can't. I just, <laughs> it's hard. This, the, the song is definitely catchy, but I feel the lyrics let it down. And what's with the sound effects solo? I mean, I don't know. Could, I get the, could you hear? I mean, could you hear this in Rocky Horror? Maybe. Oh God, yes. Yeah, well, for sure. Question. Yes. Yeah, and maybe that's why I have a problem with it. Like, <laughs> again, I, that that's like a, a kind of a musical, right? Uh-huh. A little bit. I I get the sense that this song endears the band to many of its fans, but I kind of see unfulfilled potential. Like, I feel if they had a really great lyric, it would have been an even bigger mega song because they called it, it just. Cindy Crawford has <laughs> risen from the grave. <laughs> yeah. Get with the eighties. Come on. No. Uh, so I don't know. You're I, putting, I, I think, you know what you're being right now, TR and you're fully entitled to feel this You're being a prog fan right now. I guess maybe so. <laughs> I think you are. I, maybe I am, but I just, I don't you, know what or, it is. Or you know who else you're being? You're being John when it comes to hair metal. <laughs> Here's a Brock joke Maybe for so. you. You're being a tool. Oh, I just saw them last night. Really? Yeah, yeah I did. Wow, I didn't know they were playing. We can talk about that later. Yeah. I, I I think the goofy lyrics, but with the dark theme and then the kind of show tuning music kind of just adds to this band is just 
they know what they're doing. They're not just on a whim doing this, but that's, I totally get it. Cause I didn't like the song at first and now I love it. So. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely catchy. Don't get me wrong. Like you're right. Like it's catchy. I just feel like it would have been even better if it had been something more profound than that. Like, I guess it's, I don't know, maybe I'm just expecting too much or like maybe well, I'm putting I, too much on this. That Winston Churchill has risen from the grave. <laughs> no, nobody has to rise from the grave. I think you should ask your two buddies who are BOC fans. And I would be willing to bet you, they would say, you don't have much of a history with the band. I mean, their whole History's chalked with stuff like this. Yeah, they and I don't doubt song, that. They wrote a song about Godzilla. Think yeah, about that for a second. They have other songs called like "Hot Rails to Hell" and all that. Just all these bizarre titles to songs that make no sense. And yeah, and maybe I just need to get over it and just accept it for what it is. And, and maybe at that point, I'd probably love this band. I, I just, I don't know. Yeah, for some I, reason, I just kind of get like hung up on some of this stuff. I don't. Know. I, okay, look ridiculous. at it this way. Yeah, you, you have to dig into the. Blue Oyster Cult catalog or the Motley Crue catalog? Which is it? <laughs> I'd pick probably Blue Oyster Cult. There you Motley go. <laughs> exactly. Right. Fair enough. All right, let's wrap this up. We got one last song left, yep. and it's called "Don't Turn Your Back," which is kind of a quite a, a left turn from the song we just heard to a very kind of the final track of a catchy, straightforward song with the driving bass line, but kind of I don't want to call them delicate vocals, but kind of subdued vocals from Buck. Dharma, he comes back. They're very reserved, but they're somewhat effective. And it's it's just a slightly different song. We're going to tone it down a notch and kind of close out the album. Lyrically, supposedly, it's about paranoia. I, I have a question mark on all the lyric descriptions because I think, again, they're all interpretive. The one thing that's nice about this song is there's an absolute killer guitar solo in this from him. There's this kind of driving, groovy bass line that kind of comes in with these atmospheric scents again. I can see where some people might not like this because this isn't necessarily a quirky song. This isn't kind of a weird song like the other ones on the album. But for some reason, I, I love this ending. And, but it's kind of a soft fade out, if that makes sense. It's huh. not, they're not closing the album on a bang, meaning it's like, Steal my you notes. Know, we're going to end. It's, like, mm -hmm. dun, 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 dun. it's not one of those kind of endings. It's just a nice, gradual closeout. And I, I dig it. So but I could see if people don't. Yeah. So little known fact, this w track was originally titled Don't Turn Your Back, parentheses, on the Reaper. But <laughs> they dropped that because they were like, yeah, you know, we did that already. <laughs> but I, I thought this was a competent track. <laughs> Sorry. I like the lead playing. It doesn't suck me in as, like the rest of the tracks do, but I wouldn't label it not good. But it just wasn't the album closing bam that I was looking for that apparently John was looking for too. Oh yeah. It's not a an explosion ending. It's just, okay, we're done. We'll see you guys catch you tomorrow on the next album. Uh -huh. Yeah. I said the jazzy chords are kind of cool, but the song doesn't really go anywhere for me. The guitar solo is excellent, but another song let down by the lyrics. It's not very melodic. I don't know. I just, I get it. It's kind of, it is kind of a, just a little smooth kind of trail off kind of song. I don't know. I think, and this is just me thinking right now, talking, speaking out loud about like, you know, 
I kind of feel like if you kind of changed some of the order, you, you probably could have had a better ending with a different song. And then this could have been kind of a, maybe earlier on in the album to kind of break it up a little from some of the other rockin' songs. Like you kind of put this somewhere else. Joan Crawford I, I, would have been a good ender. I kind of think so, George. I, I feel like maybe you have like, it would have felt more like, okay, yeah, this is the end of the album. This kind of feels like they kind of tacked it on and it's like, okay, what is this? And it's okay and everything, but I, I don't know. I've, this is an interesting exercise for me listening to UTR because this band features an incredible guitarist. And if this was any one of your other guitar idols that you love, you wouldn't give one crap about the lyrics from those bands. You know what? Is, I, I, I'm thinking of one band in particular, UFO. Their lyrics suck. They're just all about getting <laughs> laid and everything. But you can't say anything Lights about out. UFO. Lights TR will rip you a new one because he's such a Shanker fan. Doctor, and, I, doctor. I, I, and, and I'm having fun right now. No, no but you know what? You're not wrong. <laughs> but yet on this album, boy, the lyrics are just crawling up your backside. I, yeah, I don't know. It's so funny. And I don't know what that is. And we talked about this in an earlier episode of like, why do you like what you like? And exactly. why don't you like what you don't like? It's so and funny. it's just like, it, it, there's no logic to it. I mean, I agree. It's, Plenty of stupid lyrics on UFO albums, right? Oh my god! Come on, too hot to eat. Yeah, come oh, on. Yeah. It's like yeah, and but at the same time, it's like I don't know why would that like why would that get in the way here, right? Like you're right, Buck Dharma, Donald Roser, amazing, right? Like this guy, he's so good and so he's unknown. incredible, and some of the stuff that he does on this album is outstanding. But yet, like, I'm getting hung up on lyrics and it's like, <laughs> give me a break, right? Like, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm glad you said that because honestly, I need to, like, I need to get checked, right? Like, I need to get checked. What um, is the what is the expression? You can't see the forest through the trees or you can't see the trees through the forest or something like that. Yeah, see the forest exactly. for the trees. Yeah. yeah, and that's what, and that's what this is. Yeah, it just I, cracks I, me up. You're not wrong. I, I would, I completely can abide. Look, uh, I I do the same thing for I got my own things that I've just never let go either. But yeah. I just I'm having a good laugh about it because you know, well, like, I ah. am too because it's like you're revealing something that like I know I'm being stupid about this. Or, like no, not being stupid. It's just no, no, but like it, it is. It. I mean, I'm getting hung up on like the dumbest little things on this album, and it's it's completely irrational because to be honest, like. Uh, like my final comment about this is overall this album grew on me with multiple listens. And I have no doubt, like if I listen to this even more, it's going to be like something that like sticks in my mind. Like a lot of these songs that I just like kind of thought were like toss away tunes, like soul survivor. That was another one where the, the that chorus like infiltrated my mind. Yep. And so, and even the after dark, like I, I didn't initially that song, really didn't do much for me. But the more I listen to this album, the more it's like, yeah, this is pretty cool. Too. <laughs> yeah. and I don't know where that's coming from, but it's really weird because like the first time I listened to this whole album, I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Heavy metal. That's a cool tune. I like that. And I like burning for you. And I like, there's a couple other tracks that are kind of interesting. And then the more I listened to it, it was like, Man, like this is like getting into my brain somehow. Like it's getting It's like in you're there. a veteran of the psychic wars. It has infiltrated your brain. 
Yeah. Here, you found that fire of unknown origin. Maybe it just, I did. It's burning for you, baby. <laughs> Don't turn your back on it. I yeah. won't because this is the pact I Or have. if you do turn your back, Joan Crawford's going to rise from the grave. Well, I better look out for that. Yeah. John. So I have to say real quick, if you guys are Seinfeld fans, this TR describing this reminds me of the episode where George is trying to figure out a way to get this girl, this woman to be kind of hooked on him. And so he just says his name, Stanza like that and she just can't stand it but then she can't stop saying his name and humming it later on <laughs> that's awesome that's great so just my final notes in the album i purposely chose a quirky album a strange album because i'm going to continue down that path now for some oh. of my selections <laughs> so i thought this would be a good one to break in because there are some hits i adore this album because it's part of my upbringing from like i said that early 80 to 83 period, which was me from 12 to 15, where I cut my teeth on a lot of albums that have stuck with me. That's why I picked so many from this period, which I need to break out of a little bit, but I'm a, a good Bloyster Cult fan. I'm not a huge Bloyster Cult fan, meaning good meaning. I really appreciate everything they do. I have specific albums I love a lot. I think their live stuff, whether it was recorded in the studio or uh, actually from the live tapes, it all sounds great. I just think they're a fabulous band that I wish more people would give more time to. And I think this is a great album to break into if you aren't sure where to go because Secret Treaties, while it's a great album, I don't know if you get that necessarily right away because they are not a straight down the middle band. They're a little off center and there's a humor to them and there's an, also an edge and fabulous playing and Buck Thomas, just so I, Buck. We talked about Mac Mars earlier. We we're talking about Buck Thomas. He's just that good. Mm-hmm. He really is, and he's extremely influential to so many guitar players. That's all I gotta say. I think it's a cool album if you want to venture into a band that was considered heavy metal that never was heavy metal for one minute, <laughs> other than maybe two or three songs. This Definitely is get lumped in, yeah. So and the greatest. Uh, sorry, George. I apologize. And the greatest logo ever. In hard rock and metal, the hook and ladder. Uh, no, hook and ladder. What's it called? The the hook and cross, excuse me. Yeah. Which is just so, uh, when we were kids, you would see that everywhere all the time. So, very cool. If you don't know what it is, look it up. Hook and cross from Ballista Colt. So, I think this album was great. It is deservedly a classic and maybe a bit underrated, as I think the band themselves kind of are. People know the hits, but they don't dig deeper than that. And that is something that I have been meaning to correct and was able to at least in part do so with this. So thank you. Yep. I agree. And I kind of spoke my piece about it and I'm glad John that you, you did pick this one. Cause I, I really, I did enjoy like listening to this. And like I said, it's definitely grown on me and I think it will continue to do so. Like a fungus, a fungus, fungus, yeah. a fungus, a mold, <laughs> like a monkey beating on a rock. <laughs> you can't see this, but they're both striking a rock <laughs> with different arms. Or wait, actually, the same. No, it was the same arm, but like in different places. So. Yeah, which makes no sense. But <laughs> I don't know. All right, awesome. I'm glad you guys were able to get through it and enjoy it. So it was picked for a reason. Yeah, so it was a very good pick. As were they both. 
So oh, I yeah. enjoyed. I enjoyed yeah, all I actually albums. enjoyed. Yeah, I did too. I really, I'm glad that you guys picked the ones you did, and I enjoyed listening to those and giving them a fair shake. Not that I wouldn't have. I probably, I was probably more biased against Motley Crue, uh-huh. but I'm glad that you picked it because it 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 was better than I expected, and as was even the Blue Easter Cold album. I really, I actually ended up really liking that a lot. Well, keep that in mind for the next time I pick an album. Oh boy. Here we are at the end. Yep. For- I do want to just make a couple of notes because we did mention Tool and, and I just saw their opening show in Baltimore last night and it was phenomenal as always. I've seen Tool since what, 2004 or 2001, I think was the first time I saw them on the lateralis tour, which was amazing. They always have phenomenal visuals behind the band. The band was tight. They had a band opening for them that I was really excited to see. And that's elder. Oh, wow. Yeah. Elder is opening for them on this leg of the tour. And they were, they, it was great because First of all, I really like Elder a lot. My buddy Colin put me onto them and I felt like this was a great opportunity for them to expose themselves to a lot of rock people that maybe might not have known about them. I'm picturing them in know, trench coats now. <laughs> they're not exposing themselves so much as their music. There you go. And so it was it they did a great job. The people that were there early I think enjoyed them. I certainly did. It was great to see them get a bigger audience. I had seen them on like they did a solo tour earlier last year where they were the headliner. And I saw them like, like a club setting at a place called underground arts in Philadelphia where they were the headliner. And for them to be playing like the Baltimore arena or whatever it's called now, CFG bank arena or whatever in Baltimore, that's probably one of the, I mean, unless they did a festival show, which they probably done is probably one of the bigger audiences that they've actually played in front of, which I thought was really cool because elder definitely deserves to be heard. I I really like them a lot. Yeah. I'm surprised. I would not have expected them in that setting, but that's great for them. Yeah, it was good. And they sounded great. And and of course, Tool put on a great show, as always. Danny Carey is a beast. That guy's just incredible. All the people in that band are phenomenal. And the like I said, the visuals were incredible. And so yeah, it's it's Tool is always a good show. I, I don't know. It's one of those bands where it's like so my buddy Alex went with me and he was just like, Hey, you want to go to Tool? And it's like, Yeah, okay, I'm in. And so we went and I always like going to see tool and everything, but it's like, it's kind of like the musical box, which is the Genesis tribute band that I've seen so many times. I end up like feeling like I've seen them so many times. Do I really need to go see them again? And once I'm there, I'm like, who am I kidding? This is, (laughs) there's every, this is where I need to be. This is outstanding. This is a really awesome band and definitely needs to be seen and heard. So it was a great show. I enjoyed it a lot. And so if this gets out in time for people to go out and see Tool and Elder, definitely go check them out. You know, wow. 
since we're talking about stuff like that, I think since last episode, I have been to a show and that was Madonna in DC, mm. what? which is tangential to this podcast enough to mention, but she, she is in the rock and roll hall of fame. Yes. Mm. And with good freaking reason. Mm. I mean, the last time I've seen her twice now, which is not something I ever thought I would say in my life, but, <laughs> but I have, and she topped herself. This was absolutely hands down the most amazing musical performance I've ever seen. It really is. I mean, she was doing like a, a retrospective kind of tour where she covered stuff from all her eras. And first of all, she does sing, which I give her props for because she does so much on stage to, to be able to do that and sing the dancers, the stage show. Okay. She went on two hours late intentionally. This was the second night of the tour. The first night of the tour was in New York and she went on two hours late and they were like, ah, she went on two hours late. Clearly by the second night, it was intentional. And I think it's to mess with people's heads to get them in this late, tired state of mind because that's where I was. I was like, it's past my bedtime and you're not even up yet. Oh my God. And it was such a sensory overload of just every faculty that it was mind blowing. I mean, like towards the end of the show, I was just like, stop, I can't take anymore. It's too much information. It was amazing. Yeah, I know. John's like flexing his shoulders like, it's good thing it's not the Metalheads podcast. But <laughs> No, I was just going to say, I actually went to a show since our last episode as well, too. And mine's relevant to the podcast. Oh, and mine's not. Thank you very much. <laughs> we haven't talked about Madonna as an album. Yes. Well, have we? We have, oh, we have not. Right. But know, maybe we will if say. you keep talking like that. Well, hmm. the point I was going to make was... Jen and I went and saw Zebra when they came through oh, that's right. this area. Yes, that's the point I was trying to make. And we saw them at Ram's Head in Annapolis, which is a tiny little place. And every time you think you pick a good seat, you're like, yes, it's going to be great. Then you realize you're sitting on top of like eight other people and you can't move and it's really tight. <laughs> and it was like that again, of uh -huh. course. But it was really cool to see them in a small venue. It was my first time seeing them in 38 or 39 years. Wow. Which is really depressing considering how great they are live. Yeah. So, and John, you, so I also saw them like a little before you did, but the Keswick theater in Philadelphia. Yeah. And when I looked at the set list, you got a couple of, you got a couple of Zeppelin tracks that we didn't get at the show I saw, which I know they're, they, they'd be really good at doing Zeppelin tracks. I'm, I'm well, kind of disappointed we didn't get those. Yeah. So just real quick. On our show, we got the song Last Time in the Encore, which I was really psyched to see them play. And we also got Can't Live Without, which I don't think they had done much on the tour at all. And then at the end, I think we were supposed to either get Cashmere or Stairway to Heaven. But we, since if you don't know the Rams Head in Annapolis, it's a small place, but you can hear them talking on stage. I mean, it's dinner seating, basically. And it holds, I think, like... 350 people maybe max yeah it's small it's small even though the it's an odd shape it's hard to it describe odd yeah like yeah. The, the stage it's like there's more chairs to the right of the stage right and we were and, on the, the all the way stage left by the actual 
dressing room. We were the last yeah. seat there. Okay. And I thought it was going to be great. And I was like, this is going to be super. We're not going to get blocked. And we had some blocked view, but the band like literally walked by me a couple of times. And I actually shook hand with Felix. She like the show. I was like, duh, kind of thing. At one point at Dear Encore, they were getting ready to play their final song, a Zeppelin song. And you could hear Felix saying, I'm sick of playing that song. We're doing something different tonight. And I could see them all laughing on stage and everything. And he's like, apparently Felix doesn't want to play this song. So instead of playing one song, they played two Zeppelin songs. We got Heartbreaker and Since I've Been Loving You. And I was just like, this is so fucking cool. Yeah. Nice. So anyway. So yeah, there you go. All right. I think we are at an end for today. Thank you. If you are still listening, we will uh, be back next time with another episode for you of unknown origin. Mm. Number 10 coming up. Yep. Yeah. Big old number 10. Number 10. Oh wait, that was supposed to be this episode. Number nine. Number nine. All right. right. Awesome. We'll we'll talk to you next time. Thanks guys. All right. Rock on. Bye. Peace.